to pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. What? If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor. What difference at this point does it make? If you're looking to make sense out of what's going on in the world today, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, Annie, the Radio Chicky Bellis, and featuring Curtis C.S. Bennett and the most interesting guests that you'll find anywhere on Internet radio. And you can join the show and let your voice be heard by dialing 917-889-3675. So sit back, relax, and remember, Southern Sense is Common Sense. Another exciting Friday here on Southern Sense. You're listening live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, High Plains Pundit, iTunes, Stitcher, Speaker. I guess we're back up on YouTube, iHeartRadio, and half a dozen other places you can find by just going to our show, our webpage, which is the name of the show, Southern Sense, as in common sense. Just put a dash in the middle. Southern, hyphen sense. Dot com. I'm your hostess with the least most, just the Radio Chickadee, Annie, along with my courageous co-host who is sweating bullets just a few seconds ago thinking he was going to have to run the show by himself because my computer crashed on me, <laughs> <laughs> Curtis C.S. Bennett. Good afternoon, hey. Curtis. How are you? All right. Oh, I'm man. glad things have worked out. Oh, jeez. Sweating bullets. <laughs> like I had everything pulled up. I go to open up Skype so I can sign into mm-hmm. the show. And next thing I know, I'm kicked out. Now, I do believe I gave you phone numbers to call our two, uh, Derek Kinney and Mark Mix, right? Right. I hope I did. Okay, good. Woo! You, you did. Another bullet I just sweated. <laughs> you did. Anyway, um, we got ourselves a great, great show um, for today. And we have, uh, let's see, who do we have? We have Derek Kinney. Uh, we've had him on before. He's the author of Good Money Revolution. He also has his own podcast called Good Money. And he's also the CEO of a uh, company called Good Money Framework. Uh, we also have Dana Gott. She is uh, with the Florida Americans for Prosperity. Now, um, this is your friend. I just hope I'm going to pronounce her name correctly. Adianis. Did I say that correctly? I hope I did. Uh, I think I lost Curtis now. 
anything else can go wrong this morning? Uh, Adianis Morales, she is uh, the Central Florida Director for Protect Our Children Project. And then we have Mark Mix. He's also the president of the National Right to Work Committee, as well as the Right to Work Legal Defense Foundation. And then from the Heritage Foundation, we have Jake Denton. Uh, just a little update on what's going on with the show. Uh, Mark Tapscott um, is now involved in expanding the Epic Times DC Bureau, and he's not going to be with us until sometime in June. So hopefully we'll have him back on the show, but he's got this huge project he's involved with, and he doesn't have time for little old us. <laughs> so, wow, well, we'll, we'll, we'll miss him, though. Yes, we will. Yes, we will. So we got ourselves a jam-up show going on today. Um, we will not have a live broadcast next week because next week is Good Friday, and traditionally we do not do um, a show on Christmas or New Year's or Good Friday. We try to avoid and keep the high holy days for our faith um, uh, sacred. I was trying to think of another word, but uh, I I don't know. My mind is going faster than my mouth. (laughs) So what else is new, right? (laughs) Sacred is a perfect word for um, what you're trying to say. No, thank you very much. I can't screw everything up today. Just a few things. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> anyway, uh, also want to welcome our friend, Sweet Sue, who's listening in uh, in the uh, studio. So feel free to join us either on Facebook or YouTube, as well as my homepage and everything else out here. And again, welcome to those in the chat room here on Blog Talk Radio. And whatever they did, they've restricted who can sign into the chat room. Uh, so if I sign in as hostess, that means Curtis can't sign in. Or if he signs in as host, I can't sign into the chat room. Whatever they did, they screwed it up. Thank you very much, BTR. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, yeah. So, yeah. Are you a dragon or a gator? But, I'm trying to look at that symbol. <laughs> that's, that's an alligator. Remember that it was, they had All the right. thing with alligators at the border? Mm-hmm. Go gators, yeah. <laughs> so it's I'm a South it Carolina alligator. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Tar Heels. Uh, anyway, those that listen to our show know that we start off each and every one with the dedication to a fallen hero. And today's dedication is going to go out to <clears throat> Sergeant Christopher D. Fitzgerald of the Temple University Police Department in Pennsylvania. His end of watch was Saturday, February 18th of this year. And this is from his obituary at Life Celebration, as well as from the Officer Dan Memorial page, and from CBS News out of Philadelphia. And it starts off, Christopher David Fitzgerald unexpectedly was called home to our Lord and Savior on Saturday, February 18, 2023, at Temple University Hospital. He was born in Philadelphia, PA, and is a graduate of Stafford, Texas High School before attending Stephen F. Austin University. At the age of 19, Christopher began his career as a jailer in the city of Sugarland, Texas, the police department, until moving back to Pennsylvania to work at Lehigh County, Pennsylvania Corrections. In 2017, he entered the City of Philadelphia Police Academy, 
class number 384. Upon graduation, he served as a police officer for the Philadelphia Housing Authority Police Department before matriculating to the Philadelphia Sheriff's Department. In 2021, he joined the Temple University Police Department, where he served the community with distinction as a recipient of the 2022 Officer of the Year Award. Chris was an avid Philly sports fan and was known for his humor and community service, spending much of his time off running through the most violent neighborhoods in Philadelphia to address the gun violence epidemic, among other volunteer efforts. He was as a loving and dedicated father who devoted his life to his loving wife, Marissa, and their children, Giselle, Julian, Armani, and Autumn. Christopher is also survived by his mother, Pauline Fitzgerald, his father, Joel Fitzgerald Sr., his brother, Joel Fitzgerald Jr., his sister, Delaney Fitzgerald, grandmothers, Dorothy Fitzgerald, Evelyn Marrero, and great-grandmother, Elena, and a plethora of loving relatives. From the Officer Dan Memorial page, Sergeant Christopher Fitzgerald was shot and killed while struggling with a suspect near the 1700 W West Montgomery Street in Philadelphia at about 7.30 p.m. Sergeant Fitzgerald was patrolling the area when he saw three masked individuals in dark clothing standing in an area where several robberies had recently occurred. As he exited his patrol car to speak to them, all three fled on foot. He pursued one of the subjects and began to struggle with him in the 1700 block of West Montgomery Street. The man produced a handgun and shot Sergeant Fitzgerald multiple times. The subject then attempted to steal Sergeant Fitzgerald's duty weapon, belongings, and patrol car before carjacking a citizen several blocks away. Sergeant Fitzgerald was transported to Temple University Hospital, where he succumbed to his wounds. The man who shot him was arrested at his home in Bucks County early the next morning. He was charged with the murder of a law enforcement officer, robbery, carjacking, and several other offenses. Sergeant Fitzgerald had served with the Temple University Police Department for 16 months and previously served with the Philadelphia County Sheriff's Office for two and a half years. He also served with the Sugarland Police Department in Texas and as a Lehigh County Corrections Officer. His mother and father retired from the Philadelphia Police Department. Currently, his father serves as the police chief of the Regional Transportation District Police Department in Denver, Colorado. His mother is a criminal investigator assigned to special crimes in Tarrant County, Texas. He was posthumously promoted to the rank of sergeant. And finally, in a moving service at the Cathedral Basilica of St. Peter and Paul, Temple University police officer Christopher Fitzgerald, killed in the line, was posthumously promoted to the rank of sergeant. The procession stretched for miles. Outpouring of law, a reflection of deep respect and grief over the loss of Fitzgerald. His younger brother, Joel, pointed to the apt-capacity crowd inside the cathedral. There are so many people here, I can't see to the back, Joel said. Fitzgerald was also commended for heroic actions and services to the people of Philadelphia. 
the family was greeted by Fitzgerald's former colleagues at Temple University. The officer's widow was wearing his Temple Police Service jacket, surrounded by the couple's four children. Vice President for Public Safety, Dr. Jennifer Griffin, told a handful of funny stories remembering Fitz as he was known. Fitz was quick and witty and always with a smile, Griffin said. He exemplified the qualities that we want in our officers. He was positive, a good teammate, able to gauge the situation accordingly, and fun. Governor Josh Shapiro spoke during the funeral service, eulogizing a good, decent man going too soon, too young. Chris was the very best of us, Shapiro said. His senseless death has touched all of us across the Commonwealth. The governor then shifted tone, calling on people to back the blue. Don't shed a tear here at Chris's funeral and not support police every other day, he said. A string of eulogies told the story of a polite man who strived to lead with kindness and respect. I use Christopher as an inspiration and will for the rest of my days, Joel Fitzgerald added. Parts of Center City idled with city and state dignitaries joining to bid farewell. Sun shining brightly with a strong wind as hundreds and hundreds of officers stood guard and at attention outside the stately house of worship. Inside, there was a thundery acknowledgement of the pride with which Fitzgerald wore his uniform. Think little of the shame, officers, and you wear your uniform proud as good police officers, said Pastor Juan Marrero, Fitzgerald's uncle. Temple University officials announced during the service Fitzgerald had been promoted to the rank of sergeant. So as a tribute to Officer Fitzgerald for his dedicated service to Temple University, we have officially promoted him to the rank of sergeant, Griffin said. I'm confident that Sergeant Fitzgerald will continue to inspire his colleagues and those who didn't personally know him but will hear the stories. I think it's fitting that Sergeant Christopher David Fitzgerald took one last patrol through the streets of Temple University this morning, Griffin added. Chris is physically gone, but his spirit, love, and laughter will live on through all of us as we continue his legacy. Today's show is dedicated to Sergeant Fitzgerald. It's also dedicated to all the brave men and women out there that serve as first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency services. It's also dedicated to all the brave men and women that serve our nation in the military. From the birth of this nation through today and into our hopeful future, we dedicate this show and this song, Amazing Grace, to each and every one. May God bless each and everyone.
And we're back. You're here listening to Southern Sense live on Blog Talk Radio and everywhere else you can possibly think of on the Internet and growing. Just go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. Of course, I'm your host, just with the least most, just the radio ticket, D. Annie, along with my co-host, Curtis, C.S. and Bennett. Curtis, uh, i got to admit, I have not seen an iota of news this morning. Uh, to be honest with the listeners here, um, I spent most of uh, the early morning hours and just got home only an hour before the show. Uh, my fiancé is in the hospital. Uh, they're they're going to be checking him out. Uh, he has a cardiac condition, and I had to rush him there really early this morning. So I'm a little distracted, so I have to apologize. I'm not completely up to my normal stuff. Uh, but um, I know that the indictment for Trump was passed down yesterday. I mean, talk about right. the shifty crap that the left is pulling on him. Never in the history of the United States have we ever had a former president indicted for something that previous presidents and first ladies and numerous other politicians have been slapped with a fine, nothing more than a fine. But the, what is it, 34, 35 uh, uh, um, point indictment. I think you said, yeah, it, 36, something like that. Something like that. An outrageous number. Now, the Department of Justice, the DOJ, declined to uh, press charges against him. Uh, the Election Commission declined to press any charges against him. And the DA that has now pressed charges against him previously de- declined to press charges. So, I mean, what the heck is going on here? Now, I, did they do a perp walk? I, like I said, honestly, I have not seen the news. I have not seen anything. So I don't know, well, honestly, what's going on out there. No, I haven't either. But I doubt if they would do that. Um, I think he would just surrender or something like that with the Secret Service. But um, perp walk, they would love to see that, see him at handcuffed then. And um, it, it would be a good, good optics for them and their, their um, school of sharks that are in a frenzy right now over this. They're loving it. But um, I, I don't see them getting away with this. It's just not going to happen. It's, it's not on any sound legal basis for this, this um, indictment and arrest. So we'll see how it unfolds in the weeks to come, maybe the months to come. But all I think they're going to do is just increase the support um, Trump has from his followers. 
and um, that doesn't bode well for the Democrats. No, no. What it will do is that anyone sitting on the fence, they'll probably cement their their backing of Trump. If everyone, anyone is waffling and they're seeing what the left is doing and how ridiculous it is, it will garner him, excuse me, more support. Um, a duck is saying, have your April Fool jokes ready. Yeah. Matter of fact, talking about April Fool's, tomorrow uh, my county is having their GOP convention. What a day to have it on, April Fool's Day. Anyway, um, there is something up on Newsmax, which I just pulled up, that uh, his attorney, uh, Joe Tacopina, was on NBC's Today Show. And he said there will be no plea deal and there will be no handcuffs. Now, they will try to do a perp walk on him and get his mugshot. Of course, you know the mugshot is going to leak. But Trump already said yesterday that he ordered his team to have T-shirts ready to go with his mugshot on it. <laughs> so he's saying, yeah, right. <laughs> go ahead. I'm going to make some money off you fools. <laughs> yeah, capitalism. Yeah, Capital. yeah. So, uh, now, I thought I saw your friend pop into the studio, and then she popped right back out. Oh, um, well. I, I thought maybe oh, no, that, that was our that first was guest. Our guest. That yeah, was our first so... guest. What happened? I don't know, but I'm standing by to call back um, if you want me to. Yeah, uh, if you can, give him a call back because he was here and then he just dropped out. And I would appreciate All right. that. All right, so Curtis cannot go into the chat room because I signed in first. So, <laughs> actually, I don't think, I think he kicked me out. I think, for, for crying out loud, yes, Curtis has now kicked me out of the chat room. So if anyone sees me in the chat room, uh, looking like an alligator. That is me. That is not someone else, honestly. <laughs> so it's not it's not a, a, a troll. It's me. Uh, I'm just going to put that in here. All right. All right. So at least I do have control of one chat room. <laughs> All right. But we do have the chat rooms going up on Facebook as well as we get yeah, back up on YouTube and also have the chat room going on on our homepage, too. So hopefully someone will pop in over there and uh, let us know what the heck is going on. And just bear with me as I'm floating through. Okay. Just making sure I'm not missing anyone's chat. But like I said, if that's the talk today. Yeah, everyone's got last night, today, all talking about what's going on with President Trump and these charges against him. And what I understand is that there was a statute of limitations on one of the charges. Uh, when he moved from New York down to Florida, uh, the time clock on the statute of limitations stopped. It froze. So once he came back to New York, the clock started ticking again. When he went to the White House, the clock stopped again. So once he came back, he's no longer in the White House. They said, all right, the, we've got up until he comes back into New York when the time clock starts going, so we can still charge him. I mean, this is some sneaky, sneaky stuff, but we'll see what's going to happen here, and hopefully Curtis will have our guests coming in on the line uh, very, very shortly. And we all have a lot of other things to talk about. So again, forgive me that uh, I'm a little disorganized at this moment, um, and hopefully we'll have Curtis bring our, guy, our guest in. 
any second now. But nope. We'll see what's going on here. All right. Just I'll tell you what. While he's doing that, let me just pull up a little music segment until he can get everything going. Um, here we go. This is a good one. Let me just make sure I'm not muted. Oh, come on, play. Have you got it, Curtis? All I got was his voicemail. Curtis? That was it. Oh, All okay. I got was his voicemail. All right. All right. So, like I said, I have really not a lot to talk about today because uh, I wasn't able to do all of my homework like I normally do and have topics to talk about. Um, but I will say something on a personal level. Um, the other day, uh, it was my best friend's birthday. She's born uh, actually uh, two months and five days before me. So I always joke that she's older than I am. Uh, but we have been best friends since we were, I don't know, 11 years old or something like that. And I sent her a message, and she texted me back, uh, wishing her a happy birthday. She texted me back saying, you know, thank you. She was sitting on the phone for a televisit with her doctor, and she was diagnosed with leukemia. Perfectly healthy. She went in for a routine checkup, but her blood came back wrong. And then they did a blood marrow test, uh, a bone marrow test, I mean to say, and that came back. And it turns out that she now has leukemia. Um, she's, I would say, upset is an understatement. But it turns out she was perfectly fine until she took the COVID jab. Her blood and her bone marrow came back with the mRNA in it. And that's when she tested positive for the leukemia. She said, up until then... She was perfectly healthy. Nothing showed wrong. But up until then. And so I went over, and the Epic Times has several articles uh, under their health division uh, dealing with the COVID jab and the side effects that are now, only now, being made public. And people with a propensity to develop leukemia after the age of 55, when they get the jab, uh, they are highly at risk. And I know Sue is in the um, in the in the studio here. If she wanted to, you know, chime in on that because she is a nurse, uh, if she's able to. If not, Sue, don't worry. I'm not going to put you on the spot. <laughs> but I, I shot her over a whole bunch of articles. And um, my sister, after she had COVID, she went and got the the jab, and she said she has never felt right ever since then. Um, so I had also, when the first articles first came out, I sent them over to her. They're a little over a year old, but if you go to the Epic Times and um, you can pull up all the articles dealing with COVID and the side effects that are coming out now, especially for people with heart conditions, which is why I didn't get it, because my doctor advised me, because of the heart condition I have, to not get the jab. And I'm just wondering, because my fiancé um, had COVID and he also got the jab. So You've already had COVID. Why are you going for the jab? But he did. So I'm wondering if that is causing some of his heart problems, because this is now the second time he's been admitted to the hospital within a month because of his heart. And I'm going to ask him, you know, let's have them do a blood test to see whether or not the mRNA is causing a problem, because he's had heart bypass surgery in the past. And I know it, this is scary. I, I'm sorry. I normally well, don't air my personal business on air, but 
uh, when you have all this going on in such a short period of time, it it, it kind of like makes you stop and think, and it's, it's sometimes you just can't always absorb everything. Well, I'm going to add to that. Um, I never took the shot because I never believed in it. Um, the fact that um, it usually takes anywhere from six to ten years to test these these types of um, vaccines, if you want to call that. Most people don't call that really a true vaccine. It's a therapeutic. But nevertheless, you know, I felt that if people wanted to take it, it was their, their choice. But it wasn't my choice. And um, I did try to get information out to um, those who read my commentaries so they can make the best decision, not to influence them, but that they, you know, make the best decision because I knew there was a possibility that this might come back to bite them in the butt. Now, I have a sister and my niece, and they had taken the shot um, and the boosters, too, and they had COVID. And here, uh, just up this past week, they, they caught COVID again. Now, how is that possible? You know, something yeah. else must have had a play in this, and it's that, that shot I call the jab. Um, because I knew this this jab it has a tendency to weaken your immune system, so you end up no different than a person that's um, diagnosed with AIDS, and and you don't really suffer from AIDS or die from AIDS. It's whatever you have at that time when your immune system is yeah. weak that's troubling you. Right. You know, you're more yeah. apt to uh, be impaired by that. And I I I always say this. My caveat is. Talk to your medical professional before you decide. Don't let someone tell you to do something or not do something. Talk to your medical professional and go by their guidance. And you make an informed decision with your medical professional. So, I mean, well, I, uh, YouTube took took that one, that, not the last show, but the previous show down because we were discussing COVID. And they said I was giving out misinformation. No. I spoke about personal experiences and articles that have been published. And I said, I'm, again, the caveat is, before you make it any, anything, don't go by what someone's telling you to do. Talk to your medical professional. And sweet Sue just raised her hand. And Sue, good afternoon. How are you today? Sue, unmute, unmute yourself. I think you got yourself on mute. Oh. Yeah, I did. Hi. Uh, you know, <laughs> the thing about COVID is COVID is a very rapidly uh, changing virus. You know, it, it mutates, and it mutates very, very fast. And, of course, a lot of the flus, that's why the flu shots in the past didn't really work. It just depended on if they hit the right flu at, you know, that season of the flu. And so to take a COVID jab, it makes absolutely no sense. I think the first COVID shots that came out, they were kind of uh, basic, but later in uh, these drug companies and everything, and I don't know if this was done on purpose or not, but the ones that have this mRNA in them, they are actually changing people's DNA or they're That's attacking right. people's DNA. And so if you have the tendency, say like your friend, 
to have leukemia, it can attack her DNA and activate the leukemia. And that is one thing that these COVID viruses are now doing with what they have put in them. But they're doing a lot more than that. I know women who are pregnant, uh, they cause miscarriages at a tremendous rate. I mean, uh, I know in England I was reading an article, and this was like maybe a year ago or so, that they were having so many miscarriages that they had to start putting the, and and these are almost full-term babies, they had to put them in the adult morgues because they ran out of room, you know. We have our yes. guest on the line now, so okay. we're going to get back okay. to you, okay? Um, All right, I'll talk to All you right. bye. <laughs> All right. All right. Thanks, sweet Sue. And now we have our guest on the line, Derek Kinney. And good afternoon. He has the author of Good Money Revolution, um, How to Make More Money, Do More Good Work. Oh, God, I can't even talk today. I'm like so, so bad. And Derek is also the CEO of Good Money Framework and the host of the popular Good Money podcast. I have to apologize. Um, I spent most of the early morning, and I only got home about an hour ago with my fiancé in the emergency room, and he's still there, so i got to run back. So my mind is a little bit scattered, so I apologize if I sound a little ditzy today. Annie, well, it's great to be with you. I'm so sorry to hear that. I hope everything turns out okay. Oh, it, be- it better. Otherwise, I'll kill him. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you got to keep your sense of humor, you know? You really got to keep your sense of humor. You know, the economy today is really, really challenging with what this administration is doing. And people are, are having problems making ends meet. Uh, just simple a trip to the grocery store, you can see prices increase anywhere from 30 to 75% increase in items they would have bought two years ago. And that's a huge jump. So what is an advice that you would give to people that are just struggling just to get through every day with the staples they need? Yeah, you're exactly right. And first of all, my heart goes out to people who are working so hard right now, barely making ends meet to put food on the table and really provide a better life often for their kids or grandkids. And they're, they're struggling. They don't know what to do. And the problem is, we don't have a government right now that's demonstrating any level of economic or business leadership. And because of that, it erodes trust, and it causes people like you and me to worry if the government doesn't appear to have a handle on things, there's no clear direction, it's sort of every man and woman for himself. And that, that leads to a really dangerous situation. So what I would tell people right now is two things. First of all, ask yourself, is this expense, what I'm about to spend money on, something required or is it optional and even when I say that I hate to utter those words because it makes people have choices on things I really like but they may have to give up in the short term to make sure they they don't run out of money so that's step number one step number two would be and this is just a new way to think about things because the government is not going to bail people out for their retirement they might bail out almost everything else but not their retirement And is there an interest you have or a part-time role or something you're good at that your friends or neighbors or or former coworkers pay you to do that you could do on a more regular basis to bring in some additional revenue 
to help make ends meet. Those are the two things right now I'd be thinking about. Again, not always things you want to think about, but when push comes to shove, uh, the government is really only going to give you scraps off the table. There's no full meals coming your way. Well, I got I to gotta admit, my, my fiancé thinks I'm nuts because when I buy stuff, uh, I guess because my parents grew up during the Depression and my grandparents, you know, had this habit of, you know, stockpiling stuff. But when I see things that I need in the house, say, for example, toilet paper or uh sanitary wipes or things like that that you know you're going to need in the future if it's on sale or if it's in bulk and i look at the price per unit and i compare them i've always done that and if i go for generic which is just as good as the name brand i'm going to go for the generic Uh, but i stockpile so he goes into the bathroom one day and he sees all these boxes of hand towels uh, piled up underneath one of the tables in the bathroom He's going, you're nuts. You're crazy. But now when you look at the price of what I purchased it at at that time and then what it costs now, I think I'm ahead of the curve so that when we get a responsible administration in, I probably have enough stuff to last me into the next administration. (laughs) Well, I need to come over to your house and pick up some toilet paper because I'm tired of paying these uh, sky-high prices. You know, what's interesting about that is, that causes concern and worry and panic. You know, we see the same thing now with baby formula. Uh, we see uh, even paper towel rolls, for example. If you're honest and you, you pick up a paper towel roll, you realize there's actually less paper on this roll. And it's a way for companies mm-hmm. to sort of pass on this system to consumers that are paying more money and getting less. And I just think right now, we can't afford to let this continue to happen. And uh, the only way around it, obviously, we've got a Democrat uh, at the top, and that does have its benefits for that party. But I think people need to ask themselves, what can they do to take back control of their finances? And obviously, getting clear on what it is you want. You know, If you uh, have a debt problem and your credit cards are out of control, uh, could you set a goal that over the next 90 days I'm going to pay off X amount of credit card debt? And you focus on that so deliberately and intentionally that when it comes to wanting to splurge or, or buy some things you probably may not need right now, it will make you stay more focused on that goal. And I just feel right now as we enter into a recession period, I, I will business owners and entrepreneurs listening, what I say to myself every day, uh, Annie, I say to myself, I've heard there's a recession coming, but I've decided not to participate. <laughs> <laughs> That's one way to put it. But credit cards, that, that is today's bane. Um, everyone is so accustomed to the plastic. plastic. And how many people actually work or walk around with actual cash, much less coins, in their pocket? Um, I, we were going over to a friend's house yesterday afternoon, and we have what we call executive committee sessions. <laughs> everyone sits around and has go. a couple of drinks shoots the bull and he loves his rum and coke and there was no coke so all right we're going to stop at the grocery store and get a bottle of coke well being somewhat lazy i said all right i'm going to hit the vending machine rather than going all the way into pubs all the way over to the soda section come all the way back up to the front register for one bottle of coke just get one out of the vending machine that one bottle that one bottle that was two dollars and 25 cents and i said what 
I used to remind, remember buying a liter bottle of soda for 99 cents. $2.25 for a bottle of Coke out of a vending machine. I said, no, no, this is crazy. I said, this is the most expensive rum and Coke you're going to have. That's supposed to be like, cheap. <laughs> you know, but, you know, you, it's you, interesting really, you, have, you have to take a look. You do. You do. And, and, and what I would tell people is, you know, uh, uh, my book, Good Money and Revolution, I wrote it because it's a shame-free, simple success plan for your money. So many financial people out there, they've heard the message ad nauseum of don't go to your coffee shop. If you buy coffee, you will not retire. And it just guilts and shames people. I, I think people are tired of that message. And what I wanted to come in with was as a fresh voice of reason and say, look, if you want to spend $6 every day on a cup of coffee, then just find someplace else in your budget where you can take out $6. Because I happen to believe that coffee is the smell of money. And when I'm with someone, oh, yeah. when I'm at a coffee shop with someone in a relationship, it, it generates great ideas. It deepens the relationship. It, it basically forms some great business ideas. And so that $6 cup of coffee could generate hundreds if not thousands of dollars of revenue for me. And so I just tell people, look, if you like coffee, enjoy it. You want to have some enjoyment in life. You can't save, save, save and cut your way to true financial independence. Ultimately, it's going to take making more money, and I want to give people the tools to do that. That's a huge amen. But thankfully, I'm at that point in my life <laughs> where I just say, oh, no, no, I got my pension. I got my Social Security. I'm happy. Leave me alone. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but I have that, I have that luxury. Uh, but one of the things I've heard good things about and bad things about, reverse mortgages. Uh, I just piled a lot of money into my home, increased the equity, almost doubled the value of the house by doing what I did recently. So for me, it was an absolutely wonderful investment for what I put in. I actually, what equity I had, I actually doubled it. Uh, wow. It was actually, that money doubled. What I put in there, it increased the value 100% of my money. And that's how yes. I look at it. Uh, so I'm looking at this point where I've got more than 50% equity invested in the home. I'm at the prime point, the sweet point, where I can have a reverse mortgage. But for someone like me who is a senior citizen, I'll be admitted, I have been for a while. So I can turn around and let the house pay me to live rather than me pay to live in the house. Does that make sense or am I putting myself in jeopardy somehow? No, no. I think you want to look at all of these things as tools. In other words, if I were to go to Home Depot or Lowe's and I were to randomly walk down the aisles and say, that's a bad tool, that's a bad tool, that's not going to work. Well, who am I to say that if I don't know the project for which the person needs that specific tool to help them? And so I look at all of these as tools, and then the question becomes if they're all tools – which one is the best financial tool for me and help? So reverse mortgages, have they gotten a horrible reputation? Are there some CD companies out there? Are there some companies that have people of money? Yes, yes, and yes. Up and now is there's been so much reform and so many more reputable companies that have come in because at this point in the economy, so many people recognize my biggest asset is my home, 
And the only way to unlock the value of that is to either You're dropping in and out there, Derek. Oh, sorry. Can you hear me okay? Yeah. If you're walking around with a cell phone, sometimes you hit that one spot, you know. (laughs) Well, what I was going to say was that typically in the past, if it's taken either moving or dying to get money out of your house, and most people would prefer not to do either, and so the reverse mortgage – can be a very good option if done appropriately. And that's the key there is to either work with an advisor, work with someone who you know and trust to guide you through the process. But as a tool, I think we don't want to rule anything out. It could be a great opportunity for someone. Yeah, because uh, everyone's. I had a couple of people telling me, well, yes, do it. Others say, no, do it. Others were saying, well, why don't you just use a home line of uh, home equity line? But that's more money I'm borrowing when I already have the money in the house, that I can just say, hey, I'm taking it out of the house, not putting more money into the house. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and you know, it's, in some cases, and you have six to one half, I mean, if, if the line of credit has a lower interest rate, that can be attractive. The, the issue with that is that can be almost like a checking account. And what we often find is while many people say, I'm going to take this out and only use it for this, because of the flexibility, the temptation of having that much accessible money leads them to buy other things, which they end up with not really improving their financial situation. So I would just ask yourself, and those people listening right now, is what I'm going to do going to help improve my financial situation? Will it help either me make more money or save more money, or simplify my life? And if the answer is yes to one of those three, it may be worth pursuing. Yeah. Now, the other thing is uh, used cars. Um, Now, a couple of years ago, before all this happened, or the pandemic and everyone going nuts, uh, I was was so happy to have a gentleman hit me head on and ruin and total my beautiful car as I was driving. I was a bit of a drunk driver. so when I went to get another car, um, I now had the money that I still owed on that car, and then I had to buy another car. But I found the value of this used car I bought increased to almost double of what I owe on it. I said, okay, I like that. So I've been looking to trade that in and upgrade the model because I'm not thrilled with the car that I ended up buying. I had to get, I had to have something. I couldn't go around without a car. But... I'm looking at the market now. Is this the best time? If you got yourself a used car and you want something nicer, is it this the best time now to get it? Because the resale value of our cars are just phenomenal. They don't have enough used cars on the market. Right. So I would ask you this question. And, you know, some people will say, well, I'd love to sell my house, for example, and lock in these gains I would get. And the question I ask them is, well, where do you plan to move? Well, I'd want to get another house, maybe a newer house. And I ask them, do you feel like that same increase you're capitalizing on, you'll likely pay for in a new house? And they reluctantly say, you know, you're right. And so you're basically swapping one for the other. So in your case, yes, cars right now are at record values, especially used cars. And when you have a valuable used car, low mileage, good 
you know, maintenance records and so forth. You can fetch a premium for it. The question becomes, though, what do you want to do next? If you want to buy another newer version, you might simply be making the gain on your car and only giving up that gain to buy the new car. So really the only way to make out like a bandit right now is if you're going to buy maybe another pre-owned car or a different model where you could actually get a, a, an upgrade, so to speak, but also save some money as well. Because you know, one of the things I did is that I refinanced the car before the pandemic hit, and I had a super, super low interest rate, a great low interest rate. And I actually halved what I was you know, paying out monthly. But what I also do, I do this with a lot of my bills. Instead of paying just the minimum, I pay a little extra every month. Whatever I feel I can afford, I throw a little extra in. And I just I do it naturally on my bill pay, so it does it goes out, so I don't even have to think about it. I say I know I got this amount allotted, mm. and extra money is, is tapped on top, so I pay it down faster at a lower interest rate, which I'm looking, which is great. But now the interest rates are coming up now, and that's the one thing I fear. And I want to keep my payments down in the same level. Yeah, I think. Uh you know, when you look at that, you just have to run the numbers, and uh, which I think a lot of people are faced with now, just side-by-side side to see what's going to be the best way to go. Now, obviously, there are some car models because of their limited production and so forth where the values are actually going higher. You know, most cars tend to depreciate, but because of some of the supply chain issues and just the fact that most car companies are taking so long to get new models, they're paying a higher than normal premium for a used car. So this could be, if you've got a valuable used car, it could be a nice time to lock in that game. But I would do some comparison first to make sure you are really coming out on the positive side. I was also tempted just to sell my car, take the cash, and go down to uh, Florida to Barrett Jackson and go to one of the auctions. <laughs> when you look at some of the cars I go for, I mean, it, it is a tempting thought, you know. It really is. Because well, I'd rather you go to Barrett Jackson than go to the casino. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Uh, well, you know, there's so much to talk about, and we've got Janet Yellen uh, with these banks that are folding, uh, looking to prop up the banks at the taxpayer expense. But my question is, is that you know, when you make a deposit on any bank. You know that the FDIC then insures your deposit up to a certain amount. And now it used to be two hundred and fifty thousand. I don't know what the limit is now, but she wants to raise the ceiling and make it unlimited. Isn't that kind of crazy? We can't afford that. No, no, we can't. And part of this is also a significant amount of political posturing. It's sort of like when a presidential candidate or someone running for office will float out a big idea, and they want to get the news media's response and see how public response is. And if it's favorable, they will then go deeper down that path because they've hit a hot topic issue. But in some cases, if the response is lukewarm, they may say, okay, that didn't get the fanfare that we had hoped for. So you know, one thing that, that Jim Yellen is doing is really trying to be the front person for the president. We've seen, and, and polls have shown this on both sides of the aisle, which is fascinating, that both sides of the aisle don't view President Biden as an economically strong, 
and business visionary for the country. And so because of that, the pressure falls on uh, Janet Yellen and other people in the economic circle to frame the messaging for the presidency. And because of that, and oftentimes we see it's a very, very, I would say more liberal approach economically, not necessarily founded on business principles, but more on activist types of principles, which aren't always good for the economy, that can cause problems and why whoever we see uh, as the candidates on both parties uh, for president, we're likely going to see a, a real strong emphasis on we need somebody with an economic and business backbone that has had experience really growing the country economically because people right now are worried about losing their jobs. We see big tech companies letting people go. We see worries about that. And what that does is two-thirds of our economy are based on how you and I spend our money if we're confident. And if we feel worried, anxious, nervous about losing our job and not being able to put food on the table and, and pay for our kids' soccer uh, games and, and, and put our kids in private lessons for baseball, whatever it may be, that can cause the economy to dry up and shrivel, and that is not what we need right now. Sarah. No, it's not. <clears throat> Go ahead, Curtis. I, I just had a quick question. What would happen if um, China displaces the U.S. dollar as the world's currency? How would that impact us? Well, the word impact would be small in terms of what that would mean because uh, obviously the the assumption right now is that the U.S. is the economic power, but we see China is coming on strong. I mean, when you look at the graphs and the charts that show how much of the U.S. is owned by China, it oh, yeah. is very revealing in terms of the strategy that they've had in place for quite a while. If they were to call our debts, I mean, we could be in really, really bad shape. So in my opinion, I'm not uh, you know, a, a paid economist, if you will, but that would be a complete game changer. I would even say the word disruptor. Uh, because suddenly then we would be, uh, in, in many respects, cowering to another uh, nation that we've had problems with in the past. So we would, it would definitely have an impact on the stock market. It would have an impact on the economy. I think that would be that that might be uh, you know as revolutionary as the Industrial Revolution, for example, because it changed how we thought about business. It could have those far-reaching you know, ramifications. You know, you mentioned stock market, and I just pulled up. Uh, believe it or not, I use Robinhood. <laughs> yes, I do. Yeah, sure, um, sure. And t- took a look at it, and ever since uh, Obos, I'm, I'm sorry, Biden, <laughs> even though this is the uh, third o- Obama term, uh, ever since he took office, I've been watching it steadily drop. Now, mm. it's instinctive if you see yourself losing money to pull out, but. I'm leaving everything as it is, and what stocks I feel I want to keep the most once the market goes back up, I'm buying a little bit at a time additional shares. Right. Now, is this a wise move, or am I being just throwing good money after bad? No, no. As a matter of fact, that to me is a pretty savvy strategy, and here's why I say that. I don't say that to everybody. Um, right now, the economy is in such flux, it's, it's hard to know what direction we're going to go. Many economists feel like we might see the economy slow down as uh, the Fed raises rates. It's sort of like putting a brake pedal on the economy. 
And so we're going to see things slow down, but companies tend to re-engineer themselves and reset themselves very, very quickly. So right now, if there's stocks that you like or investments that you like, for example, if you like the S&P 500 or you like Apple stock or you like Crocs, whatever, whatever stock or investment you like, when there's days when there is a dip, I think it's a good time to consider buying. Or you might say, you know what, on the first of each month, I'm going to add $100 to this stock. And that way, one month it may be higher, one month it may be lower, but it averages out over time. And the key there is typically whenever it feels the crunchiest, how do you like that word, the crunchiest mm-hmm. financially and in the markets has proven in the rearview mirror to have been the best time to invest. Most people wait until the market gets to an all-time high. Then they say, oh, now's the time to buy. But as we know, they end up buying high, and then they end up selling low because the market drops and they panic. Well, you know, I have to say something. I keep on telling my fiancé to – he has what they call warrants with Hertz rent-a-car. And he he can redeem them uh, for actual stock certificates. Now, these warrants – we're at $29. So I don't know what Hertz is as of today, but he could pick up a heck of a lot of shares of Hertz and just within a matter of minutes, does anyone, I don't even know what Hertz is going for today. Um, Make a ton of money. Yeah, and so that's an example where if you have warrants or what are called stock options or you have investments that sort of reserve the right for you to sell them at a profit. And then the game you're playing is no longer can I make a profit, but how much profit can I make? That can be a good game to play. But I will tell you this, and I, as I worked as a financial advisor for 25 years before selling my practice, I would consult with executives day in and day out, and this was back during the tech boom. And as part of a sound financial plan, I would advise them to say, you know what, as, as the gains go up, let's sell a little bit and lock in the gains. That way, if something bad happens, you don't lose everything. Because the worst scenario would be to make all this money and then not sell and then lose it all. And you wonder, I could have paid off my house, my car, all kinds of things. But yet that's what most of these tech execs allowed to happen to them. Because they always sound like, they were smarter than their company. They knew the stock better than anybody, and they knew that it couldn't go down, and that's exactly what happened and why so many people afterwards said, if this repeats itself, here's what I will do. And so those tech investors suddenly listened more to my second time around, and as they would hit certain levels, we would sell and pay off debt. That way they always had something to show for what the stock market was doing. You know, I'm looking at mine, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm down, I'm down quite a bit. But I'm, I'm, I'm just going to follow that pattern I have been doing. And when it goes down low like that, just buy up a couple extra shares. And when it comes back up, when we get sanity back in the White House and in Congress, as <laughs> if, <laughs> what a wish uh, that you know I would then make a pretty uh, profit at that point. But. Uh, we also have the Federal Reserve raising uh, the interest rate, trying to control inflation. But that's never really worked in the past, has it? No, it hasn't. It's a short-term strategy, 
And ultimately, it's sort of like the analogy I gave earlier that, uh, you know, a person can only save, save, and cut so much until they realize, I just need to have more revenue coming in. And the problem we're facing right now is that the, the current political policies are beginning to restrict business growth all over again. And both sides of the aisle in surveys talk about this, CEOs that are more liberal, more conservative. It's not as business-friendly of an environment as we've had in the past administration. And because of that, there's worry. There's worry that the Fed might overreach. In other words, they want to manufacture a slowdown, which the purpose of that is when you raise rates and people like you and I tend to not buy the big-ticket items like a house or a car or things that – cost more money because interest rates are so high, but then when they begin to drop that down, it accelerates the spending again. The problem is, and the biggest worry, the enemy of the economy right now is, will the Fed over-engineer too hard of a landing? Will they actually cause the economy itself to go into a full-on recession that it wouldn't have had if they let things go by themselves? So right now, I think the next six months, in my estimation, as I look uh, kind of out over the economy, is going to be critical to see what direction the Fed goes. With this bank crisis that it appears uh, we may have seen the worst of, there's a lot of lessons to be learned in terms of regulation and those types of issues. That's a big issue on people because ultimately money is only as good as the trust people have in the people they invest their money with. And if that trust is deteriorating or it's not true and it's not deep, that can cause investors to worry, which means they won't buy and they won't invest. And that is not good for the economy. Now, what about then um, these variable savings uh, accounts? Um, I had, this is going to sound funny. I worked for American Express for a couple of years. So they finally told me, well, you're going to hit your birthday on this date and you're going to get your pension. Well, it's all of $24.65. Right, right. Okay, yeah, but, yeah. But I already had an American Express savings account. I've had it for a long, long time. I just put money in there, and I, I ignore it. I just leave it alone unless there's a major emergency. Then, then I'll tap it. But I've been watching the interest rate rise in the account, and I'm surprised at how much money I'm earning in interest where for many years the interest rate was so low it wasn't worthwhile to have a savings account. Now, would your advice be as interest rates rise, this is the best time to put your money in a savings account and it would be safe? Well, one of the things that we find is that whenever there is a banking crisis or really an economic crisis of any kind, shortly thereafter is probably the safest time to invest because the microscope and and the, the, the magnifying glass are on all banks right now. So I, I wouldn't necessarily worry in an overabundance of it uh, if I were investing in a savings account right now. But what I would tell people is savings accounts aren't paying very much right now. That's the problem. And so if you need the money over the next, say, 12 parking the money in savings may not be a bad approach because the worst scenario would be when I need the money, the money is not there. You want the money to be there when you need it. But if you don't need it, this may be a good time to selectively peel a little bit of that off and gradually add it to some of these more growth-oriented stocks while the market is low because what we know is typically about 
12 months or so prior to the last Federal Reserve interest rate hike is when the market tends to really go back up again. And so people putting money in the market now are placing a bet saying, we think the Fed will likely stop raising rates sooner than later. And because of that, they'll probably benefit from that. But if you wait too long and the market already comes back up again, you may have missed out on a possible opportunity that could have made you maybe a couple thousand dollars. Yeah, because I'm looking, I was just pulling up the interest rate now on this one account, and it's 3.75, and uh, which is, for right now, for a savings account, that's pretty good. Um, I remember getting 6 and 8% in years past. Right, uh, right. But that's, to me, that's, that's not bad at all. Um, but I, we also know that Synchrony, uh, which is also a credit card company, they have a savings account. They're about a quarter point or more higher than American Express. So I have a savings account in that one, too. So I have two of them going. Um, so I, I think I should be sitting pretty <laughs> until the next administration screws everything up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and one of the things I write about in my book, Revolution, I talk about the four lanes of investing. And you know, if you think about a highway, that far right-hand lane is your checking and savings account, money that's there, very safe, very secure. The next lane is that three- to five-year lane. Maybe I want to save up for a house or I want to pay down some credit card, plan that vacation of a lifetime. The third lane is retirement. It's how do I save to have enough money to not run out of money and live the life I want. But then that far left-hand lane, you know, if you're on the highway, there's that left-hand lane where it's typically – faster, there's more accidents occur, people are flying by. And I call that in my investment book, the play account. In other words, keeping some money available to buy more speculative things that you have an interest in. For example, if you're at a cocktail party and you're talking to and they say, you know what, I made some money on this and I think about it. Well, realize oftentimes the hot stock tip often cools dramatically before it gets to you and I. But if there's something you're interested in, that can be a great way to kind of kick the tires a bit. And even if you lose a little bit, it's not going to crush the overall portfolio. And one thing I was going to add, too, is for, for our listeners, I've got a link for people to download the first five chapters of the book for free. And it's at goodmoneychapters.com, goodmoneychapters.com, to give them immediate value right away. Well, I have links to your book, Good Money Revolution, How to Make More Money, Do More Good. I did that better than I started off with. <laughs> you also have a link there to the Good Money Framework and your Good Money Podcast. So people listening to you here on the show just can click on the link while they're listening. and Well, after they're listening to the show, then click on the link. <laughs> and I appreciate your that. Book and, and listen to your podcast. Derek, it has always been a pleasure, and we have to have you come back again soon because there's a lot of finances going on that's really messing people's minds up. It is. Annie, great to be with you. Thanks for having me today. Take right, care, Derek. Guys. Take care. Right. Derek Kenny, check him out. Good Money Revolution. Links are on the show page. <clears throat> I want to bring on your friend, <clears throat> Curtis, and I know I'm going to mispronounce your name, so I'm going to apologize ahead of time. It's Adianis Morales. Did I do that right or wrong? <laughs> it is Adianis. 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 Morales. Right. Beautiful name. It is a Beautiful party. name. All right. You're the president for the Orlando Republican Federated 
Federated Women's Club. You're also the Central Florida Director for Protect Our Children Project. You're an associate pastor over in Kissimmee, Florida, and you're also a member of the curriculum advisory team in, oh, God, am I having a hard time with words today? That would be Kissimmee. <laughs> okay, okay, the Kissimmee area. Kissimmee. Native American name. Yes, it is. It is. Um, now, we have um, a lot going on in the Florida area. It's also going now across the nation because uh, parents have finally wised up to what's happening in our schools, uh, the curriculum that's being taught. And there is a counter revolution to return education to a more traditional uh, path than what is we're seeing now. Uh, what are you seeing and what is coming across you with this curriculum advisory team? Well, as part of the curriculum advisory team, what we make sure is that we don't have inappropriate content in the books for our children. We were very surprised uh, during the pandemic time, which we call it the pandemic with an L, and uh, uh, we discover the amount of pretty much pornography that was in the books of children. And for two years, I've been going to the school board meetings, and we were bringing awareness to the school board. And pretty much they were like every other school board around the nation um, in denial of what was going on in our nation. So we went ahead and partnered up with Moms for America and Moms for Liberty, and we checked, like I think it was 25 books, and parents, 12 parents, males and females, read out loud the pornography to the board. And they were very surprised that those books were in our county. And that's how we started, like, mobilizing. After letting them know that we had over 100 books that contained very inappropriate material, um, up to today, we only have been able to remove four of them. So it's a, it's a fight that we're still going on with it, and uh, Governor DeSantis has done an amazing, amazing job in supporting parents and supporting um, everyone that agrees that children should not be indoctrinated, children's minds should not be poisoned and corrupted by this type of material. And I'm just very happy to, to be part, not only of this group, but several other groups that are working towards it. But we were able to witness two weeks ago at the Capitol building in Tallahassee when the law, the universal school choice law, and um, HB1 was also passed for school choice. So I believe that the children and the parents of Florida at this point are the ones that are more protected and have more rights to decide what their children learn in school. And not only that, the choices that we have as parents to bring the children to the schools that we know as parents that are appropriate for them and that carry or have the basic uh, tools to make them succeed and thrive in life. Well, right here in South Carolina, um, in the county I'm living in, uh, we have some uh, parents and other public figures brought 42 books before the school board and said these are all age inappropriate. Uh, we managed to get four of them so far knocked out. One has gone back out of the four. 
but it's it it is occurring across the nation, and parents are finally saying enough is enough. Um, Correct. We also have the the, uh, the indoctrination of children now with this transgenderism and the LBGT yeah. community. I'm sorry, you've got kids that haven't even gone into puberty, and they don't understand this these things, and yet they're being taught at preschool and kindergarten and elementary school levels about something that they're just not mature enough for their minds to to absorb. But if you even think about it factually, the human brain is not fully developed sexually until the age of 27. So why are you allowing someone that is not even four or five years old or the day they were born when some wax, you know, some people's minds, the day they were born, oh, I know that's not a boy, that's actually a girl. The insanity has to stop somewhere. Yeah, it's part of the indoctrination that, that, that they're trying to achieve, and I think it's not only in the United States, it's globally. I believe it's part of the Agenda 2030 of the globalists, where we want to um, make people behave the way they want them to behave, and by indoctrinating our children when their minds are malleable, um, that is the best thing that they can do, because if we normalize things that are not normal, and when in the process of normalizing these abnormal behaviors, uh, we give names to everyone that does not agree, and we tell them that they are racist, and we start calling them all this kind of a negative adjectives, the new ones that are being made up now out of the blues, then we are able to cut the freedom of speech of people. So people don't defend themselves, they don't defend their views, and that is the best way just to dominate a whole group and be able to achieve indoctrination in children. So if they see it as natural, and uh, I will be called a negative adjective if I say something that is contrary to what I'm being taught or what is being tolerated, then I am the one that is wrong, and I, I don't want to be wrong. I don't want to be rejected. I don't, I don't want to be cast out. So people, it, it's just uh, coercing people to take away their freedom of speech and the rights. And it's a shame. And people, rather than um, upsetting the apple cart, to play, say it politely, they would rather yeah. kowtow to the wokeness Rather than saying, wait a minute, there's something really wrong here. Now, yes. uh, Governor DeSantis has done a lot, as you said, you know, the, what the left call don't say gay bill. Uh, they've been trying to do something similar to that here in South Carolina. Uh, they also now have it where certain states are outlawing uh, gender reassignment to children yes. under a certain age, which I think that's important, too, because now uh, we've had... People, we've had a guest on um, that had himself as an adult do a gender reassignment, and after eight years, he realized there's something definitely wrong, and he went back. There's a lot of of that sex change regret, and we're going to yes. be unleashing upon the world a whole generation of people that are going to have the regret. The regret that they've had the organs removed, where a woman can no longer be a woman by and giving birth. And I'm sorry, a man still cannot give birth. You can have what you call a sex change reassignment, but you still cannot uh, gestate Correct. for nine months another living being in your body 
Only the female body of this species can do that. And we're not amoebas, and we don't split automatically. <laughs> so that doesn't yeah, happen you can't either. Change, you can't change your chromosomes. Exactly. Um, uh, my mentor, Dr. Miles Monroe, who passed away several years ago, he had a very, a very beautiful way of explaining it. And he said that when God created us, he created us like puzzle pieces, pieces to a puzzle, and that we um, connect perfectly together and that an entrance was not an exit and an exit was not an entrance. And the way that we were created by, by God, it was so perfectly that that's why women were able to gestate and men did not. And uh, when, when you mentioned that, it, it brought me that memory. And, yes, uh, it is horrible. Um, it is horrible not only because of everything that is happening. It's horrible because children are still growing. Their minds are not ready. Their hormones are not ready. Uh, sadly enough, we have a lack of fathers raising their children in a normal marriage environment. We have 50% of women raising children by themselves. And uh, the, a father is necessary at home in order to, to, for children, females and males, to, to grow up in a mentally healthy as well. Um, women are doing an amazing job. We're, we're doing an amazing job raising our children. But the truth of the matter is that when, when fathers are not home, children do have some questions, and they go through some processes growing up where they might be confused. And hormonally, at times, they will be confused because if they have more progesterone at some point than testosterone, all those things happen. That is science. And that is the kind of things that are not being taught to parents, are not being taught to school, in school. And uh, when we get to know those things, we as parents, as family, as community can explain to a child, no, honey, this is a process that you're going through. It might be hormonal, and we might work with some mental health issues as well. And that is something we know that we have a mental health crisis in our nation. So if we as a community will work towards these things, bringing awareness uh, to children, to youth, we will have less of that. And there's so many cases in the last two to three weeks nationwide of uh, young people that have gone through reassignment, and they're not even in their 20s yet, and they are regretting what they did. And they're being public about it, and they're being vocal about it. So instead of giving so much importance to the woke agenda and to the woke people that are saying, oh, yes, this is great, because this is a fashion. It's a fad. It is um, now very, um, very nice when kids are being rejected in school, if they say that they're transgender, automatically they get a lot of attention. Automatically they get a lot of friends, because I want to be a friend with a transgender kid. And they're not, sometimes they're not even transgender. They just want the attention. So those are things that we need to bring to our society. And uh, if we bring awareness, if we bring education, if we let the kids know, you know, it is okay, let's work with this. But even psychologists, psychiatrists, counselors, in some states, now they're being, they're being shut down to even talk about certain things. And these are the kind of things that I never thought I was going to see in my, in my nation, in the United States of America. I thought my grandchildren will get to live what I'm living right now. And what really scares me is the fact that it happened so fast. COVID did something that is really demonic, in my opinion. And uh, um, the, the, the only good thing that I think that COVID brought up was the fact that there was a lot of inappropriate material in the, in the kids' schools, in the books, 
but other than that, it really accelerated uh, a very negative, uh, degrading agenda that we I never thought I was going to see, not during my lifetime. Isn't it, no, isn't it, it true it, that um, during COVID, when kids were forced to remain at home, that a lot of parents got to see for the first time what they were being taught in class, and some yes. schools went as far as to um, make it a policy that parents do not chime in when their kids are being taught, and that was to sure. to hide what they were teaching the kids. Have you run across any of that? Yes, we have run across uh, about that here in Florida, even. Um, when the COVID time, when kids went back to school, there are some schools that changed some rules, and they still have those books, but they have them in a special sex, uh, section where only uh, another adult can, if they ask for the title, then uh, a staff member can go and get the book for the, for the child. Um, some schools have them in the principal's office, but they still in the schools. And our main concern was how do those books get there? And that is something that uh, at least Florida is working towards. The information we were given is that when books are bought, they're bought in bundles. So they don't know specifically all the titles that are coming. And because there is not uh, a board that checks and reads and certifies that these books are appropriate, that's how they got into our schools. You know, we have uh, not just the schools, but if you also look at the public libraries, they have sections for children. And when you go Mm -hmm. into that section for children, you will also find a lot of age-inappropriate books. So unless the public is a total outcry, and I had a friend of mine, she went in there, she she got a hold of the head librarian, and they had to sit down and they went through some of these books and then separated those inappropriate books and made them more age-appropriate to the older teenagers and things uh, where they might be looking for those subjects. But still, a lot of books that they, they said, you know, they had to remove because it just wasn't right. Yeah. And the, 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 the main concern is age-appropriate because is, that is something that I always talk about. If, as an adult... You decide in your free will to do certain things and to read certain things and go through certain material. That is your right. That is your choice. And that is up to you and God if you are a faith person. But with children, it is incomprehensible. I cannot even start. I cannot even start thinking why is this happening in our nation. And that's a good question. Why is it happening in our nation? It's a way to destroy our nation from within. And how do you do that? The yes. first thing you do is you destroy the family. And you destroy the family best by destroying the child. They've already destroyed marriage. Now they're destroying the child. So now when the child grows up, they have a psychopath. No other way to, to, to describe what these children will grow up to be. You know, um, I make a joke because there was a number of years ago I went to the grocery store to pick stuff up. And I put a divider between my groceries and the person behind me. Yes, I, I'm polite that way. I got care. And as my stuff is going through, the cashier clerk picked up the divider and was trying to scan it. And I, I, I couldn't help. I was laughing. I said, I'm sorry. That's the divider between 
her her groceries and mine. I'm not buying that. That's just marking the divide. She had the blank look at her face like, what? But if you ask them even to count out change, the simple basic things that we need in everyday life to survive are not being taught. Correct. Yes. And that, that is why the school system was created. When we go back to the history of, of why schools were created, it was to solve a problem that we were having in the nation, and we, they were only supposed to teach certain materials. So that is why it's so important that, um, that we go back to the basics, that we just simply go back to the basics. Yeah. Now, um, you are the head, uh, the, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, Central Florida Director, the head for Protect Our Children Project. I do have a link on the show page so people can go there and learn more about that. And I want to talk to you about that in a second. But you've got a friend here on the line with us, uh, Dana Gott. Good afternoon, Dana. How are you doing today? Good afternoon. I'm doing great. It's a beautiful day. Uh, that it is. That it is. Unfortunately, I spent most of my beautiful day sitting in the hospital with my fiance. So I'm going to be going oh, oh. on my way back as soon as I get off the air. So, yeah, it's been an interesting day to say. But I'm having fun talking on the radio and doing the interview with two lovely ladies that are doing marvelous things uh, for the state of Florida. And we're getting the word out so we can see this movement of bringing our back to our American values, our good Christian values here in the United States, state by state, and started with Florida as an example and making it a tidal wave across the nation. How does that sound? It sounds wonderful, and God is doing amazing things and opening up doors that are just happening even right now. Now, um, among the very marvelous things that you are involved in, you're the grassroots engagement director in Central Florida for Americans for Prosperity. Why do the S always pop off of that, that title? I don't know why. Every time I put the S on, my computer drops the S. <laughs> I got a link for it on the show page. But among uh, the other things, you also were a public school teacher. Um, you you have so many different things that you, you do, a former firefighter and paramedic. God bless you. Um, you grew up in Newport Beach, California, and you fled. <laughs> yes, we did. <laughs> so now, I, I, Curtis was telling me that the two of you uh, interact together in a lot of the projects that you do. Tell us about what you've got going currently on, the two of you, and what trouble you're causing for the rest of us. <laughs> well, actually, one thing um, we're working on right now is I'm working on the foundational education, which is one of Americans for Prosperity's Priority Initiatives. And we just um, helped pass House Bill 1, and the governor signed it last week. This gives parents educational freedom and provides scholarships if they choose to pick educational options that are different from the public school. And that is very, very exciting. Yeah, I have that right here, H. Uh, the House Bill Number One. Hey, that's, that's not too bad. Um, we have we have something that we're trying to do here in South Carolina, very similar, where the parents are to be aware of anything, especially if their child um, 
desires to be called by a different name uh, or addresses themselves as a different gender, instead of being a secret between the guidance counselor or the teacher that is indoctrinating the child, the parent is fully aware of everything that's going on, and they have a say on what is being done with that child. And that's very important. Yes, it is very important. And we're very blessed here in Florida that Governor DeSantis has taken the next step where um, some of the public funds that taxpayers, we all pay to provide children with an education, some of those called the full-time equivalent money, it's FTE like in businesses, you count your employees as a full-time equivalent. Schools, public schools do the same. They get additional money for each child that is in the school, and they it's a formula where that school gets additional money for that child. What House Bill 1 does is it allows the parent to get that money. So say they want to homeschool, they can pay for curriculum, they can pay for other educational opportunities, for tutors, for let's say they wanted them to learn Latin, they could hire a Latin teacher or pay for a private Latin class. Um, The brilliance of that is before, if a parent chose to homeschool, they got no tax dollars. If the parent sends a child to private school, they don't get any tax money. And what this bill does is say, if you want your child in another environment, the money follows the child. So it's very exciting. Well, we were trying to get that passed here. Right now we're having some problem with it. It's it's kind of like sitting in the House. Was it the House or the Senate? It's not quite making it up to Governor McMaster's desk just yet, but we're pushing hard for that along the same lines. The money follows the child. Uh, they call it the education savings uh, uh, account. Uh, so no matter where the parent decides to send the child, the parent makes the overt decision. If they're not happy with the school, they can move the child. They have it in effect uh, here in South Carolina to an extent, and we went to a school board meeting. Now, I tell people this. I was not blessed with children, but I do follow the school board, and I do occasionally show up at the meetings and speak. It's my tax dollar that's going to determine how my county is going to develop. When these children become adults and they get out and they graduate and they're part of the work crowd or or they're going to be on the government dole, one or the other, it's your tax dollar that's going to make that decision. And it's very important. But uh, as I was saying, we had a bunch of the parents stand up and it was just before the cutoff date of the tax dollars it was like about a week or two before, and they said, if you put XYZ into effect, I'm pulling my child out of your school just before the tax dollars are counted for the heads. And they said, we'll take our child elsewhere. That tax dollar will go where I place the child. And that's an important, important power for the parents, for the taxpayer. Yes, it is. And it's also um, the teachers' union, of course, was very opposed, and um, they their point was that it's their money. And we had to point out that actually it's the taxpayer's money. <laughs> and the, there, there currently are educational savings accounts for, children's with, for children with disabilities or unique abilities. 
um, hearing loss, learning disabilities. And in Florida, there was a waiting list of 9,000 children to get that scholarship to be able to go to other schools, be it a charter, a magnet, a church school, a private school, a micro school, which is a very new, interesting um, educational option and an educational model that's growing across the nation. And that is the point with this law that passes in Florida. And I know my friends that also work for Americans for Prosperity in South Carolina, they are working very hard to get the law passed. So if we can have parents get that freedom to be able to say, look, 85% of the kids are going to do fine in public school. Parents are happy. The kids are happy. It doesn't matter. Nothing changes. But what about the child that is not thriving? If a child is not thriving, the parent has to come up and has to be knowledgeable enough, has to be taught, what are the options? How can I help my child? And that is all we're trying to do, to say if the one size fits all, public school does not fit for you, there are options. It used to be, and it still is until this kind of rolls out and grows, if you're wealthy enough, it's not a problem for you. If you are lucky enough that you might be able to say, well, we'll homeschool, we can live on one income, then those are homeschool parents, and that is another wonderful model been around for decades, very successful. But what about the single mom, the working mom, that says this is not working? This is the education model is not working for my child. They are struggling. They are not learning. She can't afford a, a private school bill. She obviously can't right. homeschool because she's the breadwinner. So this mm-hmm. is not the end all be all, but this is the next right step to help that mom say, well, you know, if you take this money, there are schools that will accept this scholarship and you can send your child there. At least that is a silver lining. That is hope for that kid. Well, you know, I've been seeing uh, coming up where the homeschoolers are now pooling themselves together. So they're no longer alone. So if someone has to work and they can't do the homeschool for their child, they go into this pool where someone else will pick up the the piece for them. So they'll be doing their child plus the neighbor's child or whatever, however it works. I've been seeing some of those. Have you been seeing those? Yes, that is basically a micro school to say, well, let's say I'm your neighbor and I'm a teacher and I can say, well, I'm going to open up a micro school in my house. I will take my, let's say I have two kids and I will take eight neighbor kids. You give me your scholarship money, and maybe I can get a grant. Um, One of the, our sister organizations, they are giving a lot of grants called the VILA grant through Yes, Every Child. And that helps teachers to be able to start a micro school, which is basically a homeschool in their house, but it has more children than just their children. Now, I'm going to ask one question before I bring in, because I do have a listener that wants to ask a question, so if he just holds on just for that. My question would be, though, now, can an individual who doesn't have children at home, they're either the grown-up or they just, like me, were never blessed, can they open up a homeschool in their home and take in other kids 
and use that grant money? Of course you can. And if God gives you that gift of teaching and wisdom, I would hope that you would. Why don't we have an educational system that rewards the creative teacher, whether they are a, quote, certified teacher or a mom or a grandma or even just a woman or a man that has the gift and the passion and the desire to say, I can change children's lives by making education exciting. That is what we've been missing. That is what this law provides. All right. Well, the question is from uh, Panky. Panky, please uh, address our our two guests and your question so that they can answer it for you. Well, I am so happy to hear that you have taken this on on the objective of the money follows the child. This is something that I've been working with and with organizations and working and promoting. That money should follow the child. And here's the reason why, if you ever have to explain, you got functional families that are poor where the child comes to school knowing the things that they should know, but if they're in a classroom where that's not going on, now you're holding that child back. So that parents should be able to take their child and put them in the educational environment that goes along with that family's long-term educational goals for that children. So what you're doing is very, very great, and I hope to see it start to kick off in other areas the way it is now. Thank you very much. That's exactly why we're doing it. And um, I was having a discussion with a union teacher, a union member who's a certified teacher, and while they were so upset because they said it's taking away money from public school, the public schools do not get this money if the child isn't there. So that's a false argument. However, another union teacher texted me later and said, Dana, how do I start a micro school? So it really <laughs> is important, but it's it's like the creative teacher savings, savings entrepreneur plan. Um, one of the things you can do is keep working with your groups, keep getting involved, keep pushing, and find if there are micro schools in your area. You know, get to know them, see if you can volunteer, help them out. If, if we all work together, we can change this. And especially if, take for instance, in a poor area. Let's say there's a, um, let's say Baltimore. Baltimore has school districts where not one child is proficient in reading. That is a crime. A person or a group of people could go to the apartment complex, say, please either rent us some of your clubhouse or some rooms or we'll work it out depending on what the community is, hire some teachers, use the scholarship, and say people that live in this apartment have the option of pulling their children out of the failing government school and doing a micro school that could actually be on base at the apartment complex. There's no need for transportation. You'd have to work out free lunch and all that. But what do you have to lose? And you know, one other thing, too, one other thing too real quick, 
you have had these activist groups, like you had Al Sharpton come down to Tallahassee to criticize uh, Governor Santos talking about uh, taking black history out of the schools and AP class. AP class something need to go on in college. But here's the point. Just like you may mention in these urban schools, these black kids can't read. They can't read. I've seen schools where you have less than 5% of the student body at the high school level cannot read at, level, at grade level. So I asked these activists, I asked the NAACP, I asked the AFT and a National Education Association, what are these children going to read with? Braille? So you're doing a good job. Thank you very I much. A, <laughs> I have a question for both our guests. Um, we know that um, public schools usually have resource officers to respond in case of an emergency, and we just have one in Nashville, Tennessee. Now, um, and Anianis can um, talk to this, um, take it first. What can we do in Florida to ensure that in the private school sector we have protection for our children, or do we need to come up with some kind of bill um, to take to Tallahassee and get that going? Um, as we develop all these programs that, thank, uh, thanks to the governor, are coming to fruition now, I believe that we should work on a bill. But there's so many options. For example, we have so many retired um, policemen. We have so many retired veterans. We have so many retired people that will be so happy to invest in our children if we come up with training programs and we, we, we train different groups, we will have more than enough people to, to cover our micro schools, to cover all these new, new programs that are coming um, new right now. And uh, to add to what our guest was asking, it is so important that um, because of all, we are so ahead of the ball game compared to other states, it is important that um, that, that, that we bring this awareness out and that we help other states as well. It is important that people become aware that we want more government, that we want to empower our parents, that we want to empower our communities. And when we work as a community, uh, we strengthen our counties, we strengthen our cities, and therefore we strengthen our, our state. And that's what we need in our nation right now. But to answer your question, I think we should be working on a bill because that is something that will come up. But we, I know we will have more than enough people that will be willing to be trained and to fulfill those duties. We, if, um, now, I know I've made jump. May I jump yeah, Go in? ahead, please. Uh, yeah, please. There, please. Is, there is the Guardian program, which is a, where an armed person who has been trained, has been, is trained through the Sheriff's Department, can be assigned to a school and basically work as the SRO. There are also different departments where a school can hire um, a, a deputy or a policeman, and they could pay for it, but also I bet there's probably some grants out there where you can train 
and bring additional guardians and have the community work it out. <clears throat> Excuse me. You have five retired grandpas, retired cops, their grandpas. They exactly. live. I bet those five men would love, and they could be a woman too, would love. To Thank, you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I thought yes, I would have I'm, a job I'm, here. <laughs> well, yes, and, and I'm. Um, I have a concealed carry, and um, I I would be comfortable in, in the school setting using it. But I don't think that's for everyone. I don't think we can force teachers to be armed. I think it needs to be a school by school decision, and a lot of training needs to be involved. A lot of practice. And it's a very serious thing. But I think as adults, we can figure this out and not always have to depend on the government. Correct. And I do, too, carry a concealed um, permit. <laughs> oh, watch, watch out, folks. we got a lot of ladies locked and loaded here. Um, but I do know that uh, when I worked, because I, I'm retired from NYPD, uh, there were times that where the school resource office, officer, who was a member of NYPD, uh, would have a, they're either their vacation or not sick, and they would yank one of us in there to cover. Uh, so some places do use that. Um, I do know at one point uh, Florida had a program where they actually had housing on the school grounds, so a deputy would be living there uh, 24-7. So that gave added security. Do they still have that or did they get rid of that? I, I've never heard of that, but I think if you had a large private school or you had a micro school on a large church, uh, that's a great idea, especially if the church is um, mi- mi- missional. If they want to use their property on a mission basis, they wouldn't have to charge rent, but they could offer the property for that, and that policeman could also be in charge of training security for the church and the school. What a great idea. Yes. Yes. Um, I agree with what I saying. Yeah, I I do know there was a program there a long time ago, and you used to see the mobile homes parked on the property, but you don't really see that anymore. So I guess they got rid of it. That should be something that should be revised. Yes, I think that's a great idea. And what about a Catholic um, church that has housing for the priest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's yeah. wonderful. Well, it'd be interesting. Mm-hmm. Just got to watch out on the cursing. Because <laughs> you know we can get a little salty. <laughs> but it would have also prevented something like happened up in Chicago. No, is it that? Uh, just the other day, that uh, shooting by the transgender um, individual. Nashville. All right, Nashville. Thank you very much. Like I said, uh, being in the hospital all morning and everything, I just never was able to follow up on the news, so I'm a little bit behind. So if I sound a little nuts today, uh, you don't get very comfortable sitting in an ER emergency room. (laughs) That's not fun. Um, But now I lost my train of thought. Good Lord, where was I going? (laughs) Help me. (laughs) Well... I'm not sure, <laughs> but um, <laughs> I don't know. any one of you two can jump in um, with anything that's on your mind. I, I, yeah. I can jump oh, in. I'll, I'll, We're putting, I'm putting together uh, an event, and I think this is something that other 
people can do in their in their state since we have a new bill h bill one to invite moms for america moms for liberty um teachers churches in the area that are interested in what this new law is and we're going to have a meeting to basically understand the law help each other and break into other groups so that you can understand and then we can teach our communities and our educators about this where if another state has some type of scholarship maybe those parents community members and teachers who are involved they can meet somewhere go through the law so they know what is in the law and I think that's a good next step to becoming educated. Well, one of the things I was thinking of is that also here in South Carolina, we are a right-to-work state. Uh, I don't think Florida is fully a right-to-work state because you do have a powerful teachers' union there. But can you push for a right-to-work state, especially with teachers? And what I'm finding is I have a friend who just recently retired from elementary school, uh, she said even though there was no union, there was peer pressure, which made it feel almost as if it was type of union type of mentality. Uh, with the right-to-work state, allow to have a whistleblower program, especially in schools and areas of higher education, that they're not penalized if they bring forth something that seems to be wrong or something that needs to be changed or a new new program that's possible, that they would not be penalized for trying to help improve the education system one way or another. That's a great idea. I think so, too. See? <laughs> All right. You just hired me. <laughs> 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 because I think a lot of the problems that you see going on in the schools, the first line of defense is the teacher in the classroom. And if they see something going on with the child and with the new policies of indoctrination that we have are seeing in the school system, they don't have an outlet to say, wait a minute, this is wrong, and maybe the parents and the school board should be made aware of this. Well, I I got a question, though, I want to get off my mind before I forget it, though. We have... Mm -hmm. um, adolescents, um, children in foster care or in the care of the state, who's going to represent them as far as saying, I think you should go to a a private school. You know, I I just don't want them to get left out. I used to work in child protective services, and they don't have a lot of people that represent, you know, their needs. I, I know a parent can say, I want to take my kid out of public school. So who's going to advocate for that child that's being um, cared for by the state? Or is that Actually, something we need to look interesting into? Question. Actually, um, there is the HOPE program. It is an initiative that uh, our First Lady, Casey DeSantis, launched uh, a little over a year ago and uh, that works with uh, foster children and um, children that are also transitioning from the foster care programs. And it involves the communities and the churches. The way it works is we, the churches, we um, register with Hope Florida. And as needs come to to be, they send an email in the mornings, and the 
closest church to the need of that child or that family is the one that responds to the needs. Um, I could provide to you guys the, the link, and it's a very comprehensive program. It, um, she's going throughout the state letting everybody know she, she holds different meetings, and these meetings are very well attended. I was just at the pastor's breakfast that she held three weeks ago uh, in Tallahassee in her home, and she invited 40 pastors from the state. And it was, um, it, it was a beautiful event, and it was just to bring awareness and to bring more churches into the HOPE program. The HOPE program also works with all kinds of needs. For example, if a child, if children are going to be removed from a home because parents don't have two twin beds, they only have one full bed, and the, kid, the kids are about to be removed from the home, they do the same thing. They send that email in the morning, the closest church to that family's um, address, brings the two twin beds that they need, and those children are not removed from the home. Um, I think that is an option that, that we have there. But ideas are always welcome, especially for children that are transitioning from the foster care programs. Well, one other thing that I it always bugs me a little bit, because a lot of schools are saying, well, the kids are coming to school, and they haven't eaten properly. And the majority of these kids coming into schools their families are on assistance, food stamps, Section 8 housing, Medicaid. There's no reason for any child to show up at school without a meal or without some provision for a lunch also. Uh, can we then turn around and say, well, these are state-distributed programs, food stamps and Section 8 housing and stuff, um, at this point, you're getting government assistance for two meals a day, five days a week for that child. You now have to take a portion of your allotment and give it to the school to cover the cost of feeding your child that you failed to take care of. Can there's something like that put into place? Uh, anyone can take that one. Data, do you have Dana? if you were a teacher have more information about that? Actually okay. I don't. Um and I don't I either. think that I think that's something that the community should look at and go through the counties because I know it's a federal program. As a teacher, I um I always had animal crackers and string cheese in my office for the kids that I knew either missed breakfast because if you get to breakfast late, they shut it down so a tardy kid doesn't, even if he's in the program, does not get to eat. Um, but I, you can't be hungry and concentrate on learning. So I felt as a teacher it was just easier for me to buy food for the kids. Hmm. It's interesting. You know, because uh, one of the things my friend would always complain about is the allotment that the, each uh, teacher was given for the school year, and it was some ridiculously low amount of money, uh, $400. And the trick was is that, yeah, you lay out the $400 personally, but then you get reimbursed when you file your income tax, and you can use that as a deduction. I mean, that well, was one I of the most Dana, off, off-handed things. See that. Go ahead, Dana. I, I think Dana has uh, something to... to, to to say about this because she was telling me something that her husband tells her about when she was a teacher 
tell her the story that you were telling me, Dana. My my husband told me one night that I spent I spend a thousand dollars a year on my classroom, and I looked at him and laughed and said, "That's just what you contract." When I go to the grocery store, sometimes I put an extra twenty and put it in my purse to buy the kids stuff. <laughs> that's something. Because when I went to school. We used to get milk and cookies when I was in first and second grade every day. And a lot of things now have to come out of the teachers' pockets. I don't know what's going on with the system. We can get money away to to other causes overseas, but we don't take care of our own. Exactly. That includes our veterans. Correct. I agree. I agree. I think that is something that every teacher does. Every Everyone that has a mentor heart, um, you do that kind of things. <laughs> Man, I'm going to have to get a hold of my American for Prosperity guy here. Um, they do a lot of wonderful work, state by state, Americans for Prosperity. And uh, yeah. it, they can go onto the websites, which is then uh, to the specific state, and get a hold of people like you, uh, both of you, and um, get involved, find some way to get involved. Matter of fact, in the show description, I have a link to Americans for Prosperity, as well as a link to Protect Our Children Project. So both you ladies could have people get onto your website and see what they can do to further the cause. And, <coughs> excuse me, uh, Protect Our Children Project um, could be anyone, as well as Americans for Prosperity. You don't necessarily have to have a children because this is our future in our local neighborhood if we don't have a proper uh, support for children. And either one of you could respond to that one. No, that's that's how people can get involved. We uh, at Americans for Prosperity, we do a lot of training. We um, connect people. We work on eight different priority initiatives. Um, foundational education is a big one, um, but we also work on healthcare, economic progress, criminal justice, immigration, free speech, and foreign policy. So. Even if you're not particularly interested in foundational education, which is K through 12, maybe you're interested in post-secondary or one of the other initiatives, just reach out to the go to the website, and we always have events in your area that are available on the website, and you can just find- oh, Curtis, Curtis, Curtis. Oh, sorry about that. No, <laughs> you shouldn't be doing that. Uh, uh, no, 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 no. Oh, Curtis, which one? <laughs> All right. Let's, let's get Curtis. Curtis. <laughs> Curtis. Yes. You're, you're coming through our headset. You're coming through our headset, honey. <laughs> oh, God. Disconnect and try again. Okay. <laughs> you forgot I'm not sure what happened there. Separate room. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> are starting to truly wake up. Uh, But what we're seeing also is the retaliation against parents 
speaking out and taking action to control the education and and the lives of their children. Suddenly, it's the, the parents no longer are responsible for the children. It's some other stranger. I don't know how we got so backwards on this one. Um, Adianis, uh, how did we get so backwards? We lost our moral compass. That's uh, that's my personal opinion. Uh, we were we became totally dependent of government. We lost track of what government is supposed to be. We don't know our constitutional rights, and uh, parents are not parenting anymore. It is it is what it is, and we need to go back to how this nation was founded. And it was founded on the Bible. It was founded in biblical values. It was founded in in the moral morals and values and if we go back to that then we can reclaim our nation and we could be again that uh, beam of light that we have always been to the world and we will gain some respect as well I hope so Dana do you want to add anything to that no I think it's wonderful that's exactly what we need to do we just need to work together and do the next right thing Yes, absolutely. You know, I got a friend of mine. Um, she's a, is it Moms for Liberty? I forget which one. But she does a constitutional class, uh, which is great because parents will bring their kids over into it because it's not being properly taught in the school system. So individuals are stepping up and taking over where our educational system is failing. But uh, these micro schools are such a blessing now that you can actually physically control what's being taught. But I want to thank both of you ladies for joining us. People, again, as they are listening to the show, can click on your websites and learn more about what both of you are doing and get involved themselves. God bless you for the hard work both of you are doing. Thank you thank very you much for the opportunity. All right. You guys right. take care. We'll be in touch. Bye-bye. Take care and have a happy Easter. All right. Bye-bye. Happy Easter. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We got Easter coming up just next week. I want to welcome back to the show, <clears throat> excuse me, Mark Mix. He is the president of the National Right to Work Committee. He's also the president of the National Right to Work Legal Defense Foundation. Welcome back, Mark. How are you today? Annie, I'm doing fine. It's uh, it's a Friday, and uh, you know it's the, it looks like everything's going okay as I look out my window. So so far so good. <laughs> I know it's a beautiful sunny day, and I spent the whole first part of the morning, and I'm on my way back to go to the um, the hospital where my fiance is right now. I had a rush. Oh. So, yeah, it's it's a beautiful day. I mean, if I can get him in the car and bring him home tomorrow morning, then I'll be very very happy. Uh, Amen and, to that. Um, yeah. The movement across the nation it, to get out of unions is growing, and we've seen it where it was the original stirrings where people were finding that their dues was being given to political causes that they didn't support. Uh, but now it's going even further than that, where I know in Florida they have a bill going up there to uh, change the licensing requirements in certain uh, professions so that people from out of other states can come to Florida to work their jobs. They're turning, starting to turn it into more of a right-to-work state, more along the lines that South Carolina here has. Are you seeing a surge in your movement here? 
We certainly are, Annie, and I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, despite the the headlines from, you know, the major corporate media uh, outlets that talk about, you know, this huge increase in unionization and the popularity of labor unions, the the evidence on the ground indicates to us, and we've done the study on this through our foundation, um, that there, if you're a, if you're a, you're as a union member, you're more likely to be involved in a decertification election. That means throwing the union out than a non-union member would be involved in a certification election where you'd bring the union in. And it's a really amazing stat that no one really talks about. But you know, we want to hear about Amazon and and Starbucks and and the other kind of service industry or retail industries that unionization and unions are trying to organize. And that that includes graduate students at colleges across the country. But the idea of of this pushback against the radical agenda of organized labor is a really important part of the narrative right now. You know, you hit it right on the head when you talked about the the disconnect between union members and the political views of those that are, quote, the union officials. And that chasm, that difference between the attitudes of rank-and-file union members and the so-called leadership of the unions is growing wider and wider all the time. And I think that's driving lots of workers across the country to take a look at this relationship and say, you know what? I can't in good conscience continue to support a labor union that basically is supporting causes that I oppose, uh, supporting candidates that I oppose, and supporting ideological, ideology that I oppose. So that separation is growing, and we're seeing it here in our work at the foundation for sure. You know, it's funny because back in the 80s, giving my age up again, um, I was working for American Express at one point, and they came around payday at every once in a while with a list of companies or organizations or or foundations or charities that they recommend you to donate money to. And they would say, well, we can take out X amount of dollars out of your paycheck to go to whatever charity function, whatever it is you want to send your money to on this list. And I looked at the list and out of, I think it must have been 20 different companies, I only saw two that were conservative. Most of them were the starting of what we see as wokeness. And it drove me crazy. It's like, wait a minute. Your name is American Express, so you should be you know, uh, presenting American values and ideals, uh, not this leftist woke crap that we saw back then. And today, oh my goodness, I doubt if you'd even ever find anything hinting of Christianity, conservatism, American values. I, I don't think you could even find that anymore. Yeah, I guess in your case, the only good silver lining to that was it was voluntary. Um, in many situations across the country, in 23 states that don't have right-to-work laws, you can be compelled to support the union as a condition of getting or keeping your job. And, you know, that's the injustice of the, of the labor policy that forces people to associate with the union or to associate with a cause or an ideology that they oppose. And we had a Southwest flight attendant by the name of Charlene Carter who had a 20-year unblemished employment record with Southwest. She was there when it was fun to be, you know, an airline flight attendant and be on the airline and when Southwest was fun, actually, too. Uh, if you've traveled lately, you find that air travel is not that much fun anymore. But So she decided, based on the positions of her union, the Transportation Workers Union that represented her at Southwest Airlines, and I'm using my finger quotes when I say representation because you can't, you can't see it, but I'll tell you that I'm doing it. Um, but she basically <laughs> found out that they were supporting radical causes, which she disagreed with from a from a 
philosophical, from a religious standpoint, from a spiritual standpoint, she couldn't – she just couldn't put up with the notion that she was forced to pay dues to keep her job to this union. So she started making her views known to the union officials. In fact, in private emails between her and the union official that was in charge of her bargaining unit, they had conversations about what the union was doing with her money. And she decided that she wanted to push back, and she announced that she was going to try to make sure that this this union official was not reelected, and that made the union official extremely mad. And it came to a point where Charlene shared some of her more personal views with the union official, and that union official went to Southwest Airlines and said, you have to have this person fired from her job because she's harassing me. And Southwest Airlines did that. It had nothing to do with her performance on the job. It had nothing to do with whether she was a great or good or medium or bad flight attendant. Nothing to do with that at all. It simply had to do with the fact that she was disagreeing with the union official about how the union was spending her money to support causes she disagreed with. And she got fired. Well, she found an attorney here at the Right to Work Foundation and in a five-year legal odyssey ended up in front of a jury of her peers down in Texas. And the jury awarded her $5.1 million in penalties and punishments <laughs> against the company, Southwest Airlines, and the union for this illegal firing based on her position on issues that, again, with nothing to do about her, her you know, activities in the workplace and nothing to do with the workplace for that matter. And so those are the types of battles that we're up against. And, and to, to your point, Andy, that, that's kind of the separation between the union officials or American Express on one hand and their employees or, in the union context, rank-and-file workers on the other. Uh, thank God I never had to join a union, even though we had a, a, a association. Was because New York State, you were not if you were a civil servant, especially police, you could not belong to a union. But that's not so anymore, unfortunately. Um, we're finding now civil servants become unionized, and what happens? The civil the government is now deciding what the benefits and pay are. But yet the union itself is now part of the government, so they are the ones making that decision on where our tax dollars are going on benefits and pays on the civil servants. This is crazy. We never saw civil servants before being unionized, but now that's what the movement is. And worse, they now want the congressional aides to become unionized. <laughs> yeah, Annie, that you know, you, you you again, you describe it very very well. In fact, we ended up in the United States Supreme Court on behalf of a worker from Illinois on that very issue. The idea that the unions in the public sector, when you talk about government employment or the public sector, you talk about the unions positioning themselves in between taxpayers and elected officials. And this case was on behalf of a gentleman by the name of Mark Janice, who worked for the state of Illinois, and he was required to pay fees to the union in order to keep his job. And, and uh, he was objecting to how the union was lobbying the government, what they were lobbying for, and how they were literally destroying a state that he loved so much in Illinois. And so we took that case through the federal court. We ended up in the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, back in June of 2018, and the Supreme, a majority of the Supreme Court justices, Annie, said exactly what you just said. They said that everything the government unions are doing is redressing government to basically impact how the government spends their money. And oftentimes, those union officials that are negotiating, and I'm using my finger quotes again here, uh, with the, with the <laughs> officials on the other side of the table are the same people they, sh they supported in political campaigns. And so who's left out of the equation? The taxpayer and those workers who object to the positions of the union. So the Supreme Court, uh, on that June, I think it was June 28, 2018, it was a day that I, I should never forget because it was a big day for our Legal Defense Foundation who argued the case in front of the Supreme Court. 
they said that everything that government unions do is political speech, and therefore it's protected by the First Amendment. So today, anywhere in America, at any level of government, no worker can be compelled to pay dues or fees to a union in order to work for their government. So we've got right-to-work protections for most public employees. But of course, Annie, you'll, you won't be surprised when I tell you that the unions are not really super happy about having to tell people, and uh, they kind of make it difficult for people to find out about their rights. And so we're able to help most folks, and we've had uh, several, several litigations since then helping public sector employees get out of that relationship that you're talking about. And it really is a dangerous one. When you think about uh, the idea that government's a monopoly, it's the one institution that we as, you know, as basically the, the citizens of a country that is, is a grand design and self-government, we give them the ability to use force. But we don't give it to anybody else. And yet now the unions have that, you know, they had that position previously. They said, look, you either pay us or you don't work for your government. And the same is true in the private sector. That's another issue, judicial issue, that we, have, we would talk about. But in the public sector, we have protected those workers. That's a good thing. Um, but the, the idea of workers joining unions and organizing unions in the public sector is, an, is a whole other question altogether, specifically because of your point about the, the unbelievable power and position it gives them in taxpayers and elected officials. Well, I'm going to throw a name at you, but before I do that, I want to make an observation because the mandatory jab for workers, government mm. workers, of military, law enforcement. Now, New York City police were able to rescind that, so there's no mandate for that. But one thing about you know fighting for the union, but another thing about forcing a person to take an experimental drug against their religious beliefs, their personal beliefs, or even medical necessity, uh, forcing them either that or you do not work. Uh, what is uh, your group doing on that, the National Right to Work Committee and the Legal Foundation? Yeah, that, that's a great question and one that we were confronted with in a dramatic way, you know, when all this stuff came about, what is it, one or two, and, and actually some of it still exists, I guess, under President Biden, he's still, I don't know if they've rescinded the, the military force jab. Here's where we were on it. We had lots of people calling us about it, and obviously it's the same type of issue, you know, this idea of compulsion and the employer requiring you to do it. In this case, the government saying that the employer um, had to, must require you to do it to get the vaccination. We, when, when the unions were demanding that workers would do it as a condition of their continued employment, we were getting involved, and we got a lot of folks out of that using our, our lawyers and our legal defense system here at the, at the Right to Work organization. Um, when the employer was doing it, we tend not to stay out of it in that regard because we don't want to litigate. We want to litigate for employees against union coercion. In the case of the employers, it was a little different story. But, you know, it's the same thing. And, and the idea that the unions would push it, and what we found in many cases, Annie, was the union would say, well, you know, we're not necessarily for it right away, but if we can re open up the contract and renegotiate the contract and other terms and conditions of employment, we're more than willing to agree to, you know, allowing the force union, the force jab, if you will, of, of these employees as a condition of their keeping their jobs. And so the, the unions, some unions were in for it, some unions were against it. It was a really interesting, um, you know, kind of dichotomy when you think about how certain, how it was applied in certain instances. But we did get relief for lots of employees that called in and said, hey, my union won't help me with this, and they're saying that I have to do it. And so we litigated those cases when, there were, when the union was pushing this 
in promoting it uh, because that's kind of our mission statement. Um, we do sue employers all the time. I Don't get me wrong. I mean, we, we have several litigations right now against employers who are violating workers' rights as it relates to forced unionism. But that was that question was one that was important, and we had two attorneys specifically that were, were using the religious objection, the freedom of conscience objection, and then there were other issues that ended up in that mix, uh, and we were able to get relief for, for several employees across the country. All right. Now I'm going to get your blood to boil. <laughs> okay. I'm going, to throw a, I'm going to throw a name at you. Uh, President Biden selected Julie Sue to replace Marty Walsh as the Secretary of Labor. Why should we be upset? Is there any least little reason why? There's lots there of go. reasons. In fact, there's, yeah, there's, 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 I will say hundreds of thousands, if not millions of reasons why we should be upset about this. And, and you're correct. I mean, he has nominated this Julie Sue to be the Department Secretary of Labor. Uh, she's coming up for a hearing on April 20th in front of the Health, Education, and Labor and Pensions Committee. That's Bernie Sanders' committee. Um, obviously, she'll get a favorable uh, reception at that committee, but it doesn't look like she's nailed down a favorable reception by the whole Senate. And why would senators be against a Biden appointee, especially when Schumer runs the Senate, and they're responsible for concerning the nomination. Well, so a couple of senators are concerned specifically because she came out of California. And, you know, most people say that what happens in California usually, unfortunately, migrates across the rest of the country, and it causes trouble for the country. And if you look at California, you know, in a singular basis, and you look at the policies of California, you, you can understand completely why people are fleeing the state. I mean, they, they actually lost a congressional district last uh, redistricting or reapportionment because so many people are leaving and so many businesses are leaving because of the overarching regulation and control that Gavin Newsom and his cabinet and his, his uh, bureaucrats have waged against individual citizens and individual rights out there. I mean, not, notwithstanding the COVID vaccine and anything else about that, you know, uh, he goes and eats at uh, exclusive restaurants while everyone else is, you know, forced to stay in their homes. But I won't get started on that. I'll get back to Julie Sue. She was the architect of a, <laughs> of a policy out in California that basically wiped out the gig economy. You know, when we think of the gig economy, we think of Uber and Lyft drivers. Those are kind of the, the real manifestations of kind of this independent contractor status. But we also have to think about like owner operators, small business people that buy a truck and they, you know, buy, maybe buy another truck and they drive it themselves and they have their own little small business. Or freelance writers who write copy for various newspapers and magazines and, and other types of independent contractors that are out there setting their own schedules, picking who they work for, who they want to work for, some people are supplementing a second job, you know, a first job or whatever, but they're making decisions about how they're going to allocate their time and how they're going to, well, how they're going to do their work. Well, this, this bill, Assembly Bill 5, was a very controversial issue and very controversial bill that passed California, and Julie Sue was kind of the architect of that. And what it said was that they were going to redefine what an independent contractor was and try to make sure that everyone was, was defined as an employee. And from our perspective at Right to Work, there's a really clear reason why they wanted to do that, because you can't unionize independent contractors, but you can unionize employees. And so from a revenue standpoint, the unions have a whole lot of interest. Union officials have a whole lot of interest in making sure that we can redesignate all of these gig economy employees or gig economy workers and independent contractors as employees for purposes of unionization. And if you look at the damage that's done and what's happened to like the franchise model and other things that are happening out there and Uber and Lyft and, and those other types of gig economies, you don't want to impose that on the rest of the country. And Julie Sue is the architect of that. And so 
it's no surprise that she, when she was getting confirmed for deputy secretary, I think she got 47 or 48 votes against her for that position. And I think the scrutiny level is going to be a little bit higher for her because she is truly someone who wants to promote forced unionism. From our perspective, it's really clear there are lots of other issues at the Department of Labor that, that other groups are interested in and dealing with. I found it interesting the U.S. Chamber of Commerce is staying out of the fight. Uh, the National Association of Home Builders is staying out of the fight. The National Retail Federation is staying out of the fight. They're just letting it go. Um, but there's lots of folks that are involved, and we're involved in, in, in encouraging senators to oppose her nomination for, because of her just continuous drive to force more people into unions, which creates more revenue for union officials. You know, you think about how many jobs are out there that are independent contractors, and these are people that a lot of them work out of their homes. Like my late husband was a home inspector. I mean, mm-hmm. the last thing mm-hmm. we would want would be would be to unionize because now I'm competing with other fellow home inspectors for the very same jobs. But if you're an employee, now all of a sudden, hey, um, now I'm going to be told what job I can or cannot take compared to my choosing my own uh, pay rates, uh, my own services, that is taken away from you. Yeah, that's right. And it's kind of interesting because they, they, they created this so-called ABC test, which basically designates you as an independent contractor or employer. And so, for example, a home inspection guy, let's say this. Let's say that you, your late husband had a great relationship with uh, uh, Keller Williams, real estate company. And Keller Williams, every time they were getting ready to sell a home, they'd call your late husband and say, hey, we want you to go out and inspect this house and you know, let, give us a report and let us know what's going on for our side of the, uh, of the contract. And all of a sudden, when people look at it and they say, oh, my gosh, Keller Williams controls this guy's you – know, they, they, they're the ones that control his time and where he goes and how he spends his time. And the fact is, the relationship says, yeah, okay, I'll go do it, or I can't do it today, but I'll do You know, I got Jim, another guy I know who will do it. But the moment that they can establish any type of control by the company, they say, okay, he's an employee of the company, and therefore he'd be subjected to unionization. And, and that's the secret about this whole thing, is kind of basically saying, as you had described, Annie, properly, you know, most of these independent contractors and people that are in the gig economy are there by choice. Um, it's their choice, and they can decide what they want to do. And they can obviously, there's no lack of jobs out there right now and across the country. I mean, every place you go, you're finding, you know, uh, hiring people now, uh, signing bonus, you know, uh, whatever. Uh, you see that all over the country. So the idea of reclassifying them is what they're interested in. And like, as I mentioned, Julie Sue is the architect of that. Yeah, you think of had so many different jobs that people do, so uh, careers they chose. Uh, for example, a singer-songwriter. If you produce a lot of stuff, say, for a studio, now you're an employee of that studio and not an independent contractor choosing what to offer and say, I'm sorry, I don't do that genre of music. I only do these. No, no, no. We're going to tell you what you can and cannot write, who you will and will not write for. And it, it, what is the purpose, then, of being an independent? What they're doing is they're forcing everyone to be an employee, period, and a union member. Yeah, and, and probably the best realization of that was the the trucking industry in California. I mean, one of the requirements of AB5 when it was finally enforced and it went to the ballot and the ballot, the Supreme Court there overturned the, the opposition that was that the opposition actually overturned it and a, a judge overturned the ballot results and and some people have been exempted. But one of the most interesting kind of results of the AB5 thing was the owner operators that were servicing the uh, Long Beach and the uh, and the Los Angeles port. 
basically 70,000 of them were kind of independent contractors and owner operators and they decided they didn't want to do that work anymore. And so all of a sudden you had this, this, this huge, huge uh, yeah. leaving of all these truck, truck drivers and they don't know what they're going to do with it now. Fortunately, the, uh, the supply chain issues have, have, have kind of settled down a little bit, but the impact of that was, look, I've got two trucks. I've got my cousin driving one, and I'm driving one. And just because we work at the port and we end up picking up these these uh, containers that are, you know, by this particular company, that doesn't mean we're an employee of the company. We show up to go to work, and some days we don't show up, but we do. Um, and when we do, we're independent. And no, you can't be that anymore under the rules and regulations of AB5. And and to spread that that type of architecture over the entire country would have a devastating fact on, uh, impact on literally hundreds of thousands, not millions of workers across America. Well, not only that, you could not be a trucker in the state of California unless your truck made, met certain standards, uh, certain age of the vehicle, <laughs> certain... And all of a sudden, you have all these independent truckers that are probably driving trucks that are 10, 20 years old, they can't cross into. They cannot even cross the California border because the trucks do not make the newsome gruesome standards. Yeah, you're you're on top of the news there. Yeah, that's right. If your if your tractor and your tractor trailer consist is older than 2011, you can't uh, you can't do work in in California. That's exactly right. I mean, these are the types of regulations out there. And you know, these diesel engines are made to run for literally hundreds of thousands of miles. And I think probably a lot of truckers uh, have put you know put 85 to 100 thousand miles or more on their truck each year. But they you know they refurbish their engines and away they go. And and uh, you know they're they're, they've decided to do that, but now with the with the so-called you know uh, environmental regulations out there, we're part we're all part of this. As AB5 came in and these environmental regulations were imposed on the ports out there, the truck drivers had to radically change the way they operate, and most of them just decided, you know what, we'll go elsewhere, and that's what's happened. Yeah, unfortunately, and which is also why we had such a backlog of supplies at Long Beach and all the other ports along the uh, California coast. Gee, you wonder why you can't get anything. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, there's a big story right in South Carolina, the, the Hugh Leatherman Terminal that's in the Charleston Port Authority. Um, that's the newest terminal that's been built in the last decade in the United States. And allegedly it's, you know, the most efficient and the most uh, technologically advanced. And yet, as of, well, I think one ship showed up there is getting unloaded right now. There's a small ship that's getting unloaded there now. But there was not one ship that was being unloaded at the Hugh Leatherman port, this new port in the, in the Charleston port system, um, for the last couple of weeks. I think it's been like three or four weeks. I keep checking to see if a, if a boat goes in there. And there was one boat, one ship that came in, but it was just hanging out there after it had been unloaded at Wando, which is another terminal in the Charleston system. But the, the reason why no one will go there is because the union officials, the International Labor Association, decided to file a law lawsuit against the Port Authority saying that nobody, well actually they filed it against the shippers, Hapog Lloyd and another big ocean carrying container a ship company, and said if you go unload there we're going to come after you because the union wants every single job that is, exists on that new port in, in the new port, the Leatherman port, and they won't let anyone come and everyone's scared to come because they don't want to be named in the litigation which is ongoing in New Jersey. It's a $400 million lawsuit against two shipping companies for going to this port and being unloaded by allegedly non-union employees which the union won't stand for. And there's going to be a, actually a hearing in Baltimore here in, I think, another couple of weeks about the, about the litigation there that basically is stopping the operation of a, of a huge container, huge new container port in South Carolina. Well, you know, it's funny because I'm just an hour south of, uh, of there, about 
went to the port about an hour, hour and a half. And you didn't hear anything about that down here, but you heard about the Murdoch <laughs> murder trial. Yeah, right. There are certain things that have sharper elbows and crowd out the news. But yeah, no, this has been going on. This has been going on for a couple of years now. When they when they opened the port up, and they were excited about it, and they're still. This was just phase one. I think South Carolina invested about a billion dollars into the port um, to get it going and to expand their capacity. And the funny thing was, or not the funny thing, the tragic thing was, is that the bo- the boats were going, the ships were going to Wilmington down to North Carolina, and they were coming back, or they were going to Wilmington, and they were coming down to get fueled, refueled in Charleston, and then going back up and waiting to get unloaded at another port. It was really a sad story, particularly for the workers that were working in the port system down there that were running the, those ship-to-shore cranes and bringing them in. It all turns out that it's about forcing workers into the union and having the union demand every single job. And I, unfortunately, I'm, I'm a little worried that the South Carolina Port Authority is not standing up and pushing back as hard as they should based on the model that existed at Wando. And there's, I think there's four terminals down there. There's a cruise ship terminal. There's a car terminal. There's the Wando Welch terminal where, where the people are unloading and cars are unloading and obviously containers are unloading and Leatherman was part of that new uh, that new system and that new port and designed to increase the exposure of the East Coast ports by you know building a new and exciting port there but the unions say you know what you can't operate it unless we control it yeah matter of fact we've been trying to get a port built on the south end of South Carolina for good lord a good 20 years and they keep on running into one problem after another after another which would relieve some of the traffic over at Savannah and push a little bit further inland and open up a whole new economy in some of the poorest areas of the uh, county along the South Carolina-Georgia border. It was supposed to be a joint venture between Georgia and South Carolina, and it seems to have hit a lot of, lot of problems on that. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard I heard of that project as well and uh but again the other the other issue that will come to, into play is the power of the unions in the port system and uh you know I think on the west coast you have 29 you have 29 ports that are governed by the International Laborers and Warehouse Union that ILWU out there and the Pacific Maritime Association which is the representative of the carriers and they're negotiating a contract right now and that contract expired back in June of last year and at some point there'll probably be a job action. I mean, the leverage of the unions has diminished a little bit because of the nature of the supply chain tank, chain, and it's not as nearly as clogged up as it was, you know, two years ago or a year ago, even at that point. But the power that unions have over that type of, uh, the leverage they have is just incredible, and it's a result of federal labor policy and state labor policy in some cases. And those are the types of policies that Julie Sue, as the Secretary of Labor, will be involved in, um, and Marty Walsh was involved in. You know, you remember Marty Walsh when he was allegedly in a smoke-filled room with the railway, the railroad unions and the railway owners, and, uh, you know, they negotiated a settlement to the potential railroad strike back in September, um, and they dropped the mic and said, we got it all solved, and immediately after the elections, we realized that they hadn't got it all solved, and the threat of a strike came up again, and, uh, you know, that was where the Biden administration was basically saying to the unions, even though four of the, uh, well, I think it was 13 unions that were negotiating, or 11 unions that were negotiating contracts, four of the unions, actually, the rank-and-file workers actually voted against the contract proposal that came out out of the Presidential Emergency Board under the, under the Railway Labor Act, four unions actually voted against the contract, but yet it was imposed on them. I mean, so you know, if you're a rank-and-file union member, you look at like, well, why the heck are we in this if, if our union officials are going to agree to things that we vote down? And that's exactly what happened there. And so you know, that type of leverage and that type of power that union officials have over workers is something that we need to try to correct, and we keep fighting against every day here at the National Right to Work Committee and Foundation. 
Wow, it's a lot of good hard work you do. But the National Right to Light, Right to Work, <clears throat> if I can get my teeth in straight, Foundation <laughs> is not anti, is not anti-union or pro-union. You're, you do a middle-of-the-road type of approach, don't you? That's exactly right. I mean, our mission since 1968 has been to represent employees whose rights have been violated by forced unions and agreements. And unfortunately, federal law is very, very well slanted against individual freedom when it comes to the workplace for, for workers that have, would object to unionization. So we sue companies. In fact, I was just on the radio in, in Iowa before uh, you and I started talking. We sued a company out there that was telling a worker that they couldn't get out of a union and, and they had to continue to pay full dues out there. And, uh, and you know, it was a violation of not only the National Labor Relations Act, but a violation of Iowa's right to work law. And so we sued the company. We still have a pending charge against them. We got the union to settle and give the workers back their money. But yeah, it, it's it's there is really out there very few people that will defend their workers when it comes to unionization. And there are lots of great employers out there that continue to say no. You know, why should I need a union? And my employees don't need a union. And if they take care of their employees, there's never a problem. I mean, if they do, if they don't take care of their employees, then the employees have the right under federal law to organize and to amplify their voice through bargaining and selecting a union to speak for them. But that choice ought to be voluntary. It, it ought to be voluntary, and it ought to be on behalf of the workers that actually choose to have it, as opposed to applying it to everybody in the workplace, even the people that voted no. You know, I testified in a hearing in front of Bernie Sanders I guess it was two weeks ago, um, they had the AFL-CIO president and the SEIU president, the Service Employees International Union president, and then the Teamster Union president, and then I was testifying as well. And, and I listened to Senator Sanders talk about you know, labor policy and how, Annie, it's, just, it's amazing to me that this doesn't get more attention, but literally the view of Bernie Sanders is that union workers or workers in general across America are too stupid to make decisions for themselves. And therefore, we have to apply federal law to give these union officials the ability to speak for them and to negotiate for them and to get <laughs> contracts for them, even though the workers say no. I mean, and, and it, that whole tenor of the committee hearing was just exactly like that. Like, you know what? We need to take care of these people because they don't know how to take care of themselves. And, you know, one thing couldn't be better. I think it was in Atlanta, Georgia, they were talking about a school choice bill that would give parents the ability to help decide where their children go to school. And there was, a, there was a state legislator there, I think it was a House member, who literally finally said it out loud. She said, the people in my district are not educated or smart enough to make decisions for their children, so therefore we have to do it. I mean, that's basically a paraphrase of what she said, but it was just out there. And that's the same attitude that Bernie Sanders and, and Patty Murray and, and uh, you know, the, the, the Democrat senators that support forced unionism. That's what they believe about rank-and-file workers. They, think they're, they, they don't think they're smart enough to make decisions or speak for themselves on the workplace. I know that's wrong. Growing up in a union household, my stepfather was a 32-year member of the machinist union, and he was pretty good at speaking for himself. I promise you. He, he liked the union. He joined the union. The union spoke for him, so that was all fine and good. But he was smart enough to know what was good for him and what wasn't. And uh, I, I get offended every time I hear that, whether it be you know, uh, a legislator in Atlanta saying it specifically or a Bernie Sanders from the podium of the Senate committee you know, basically articulating that idea, that notion that somehow these workers could not ever make a decision for themselves without a labor union official involved. Well, I didn't get your blood boiling, did I? <laughs> <Jake>. <laughs> well, I, got to, I do have to I, – let me get my blood pressure cuff out and take it just to make sure I'm safe. But, uh, yeah. 
Well, I've got links to your organization on the show page so people can go down to the description while they're listening to the show. And we get a lot of hits in the archives and click on the National Right to Work Committee as well as the National Right to Work Legal Defense Fund. And you do great work out there and you've got to have to have you come back often because I just love getting you riled up. Well, it's good for me. I don't get enough exercise. So when you get me riled up, I feel like I'm, you know, burning some calories or something. So I appreciate that. Thank you for that. Oh, you're welcome. Anytime. You have a great day then. You too, Annie. Thank you. Thank you. Check out Mark Mix at the National Right to Work Committee and National Right to Work Legal Defense Foundation. We have our final victim in the show right now from the Heritage Foundation, Jake Denton. Good afternoon, Jake. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure, our pleasure. Now I'm going to get your blood boiling. <laughs> I'm doing that to a lot of people today. I'm going to say one phrase, TikTok, and why should we be worried? Yeah, well, you know, we just had the congressional hearing, the highly anticipated congressional hearing about a week ago now. And um, I think we saw that, you know, this issue is only going to continue to get worse until we get a full federal ban of the application and really, there hasn't been enough movement on it yet. So I think that should be your main concern here is that uh, all signs point to this problem of data collection, of pushing propaganda on our kids, only worsening. Our leaders just don't seem to, to have any motivation to move very quickly on it. Uh, but people don't understand the danger. Um, we're out there putting our entire lives uh, up on the Internet. And it's one thing when you're up on Twitter or Facebook or something like that, but when you have the Chinese Communist Party behind TikTok, you wonder what they're going to do with that data they're collecting on the everyday person that thinks they're, it's perfectly safe. You know, I've got a million followers, so I've got to be somebody. Well, maybe half of those followers are the Communist Party uh, workers just making sure that your idiocy stays up there and they get to learn more about the idiocy of people that tick on, uh, post on TikTok. Yeah, that's right. You know, I think uh, what people are starting to figure out is that the data collection that's being done on TikTok is not the same as these other social media platforms. TikTok uniquely tracks your geolocation almost constantly. They're tracking your keystrokes, which means they can scrape your passwords and login information. Uh, they're even tracking, you know, your uh, your face patterns, right? So how you respond to things um, on the app, you know, what your face looks like when you upload a video. Um, they refer to that as, you know, your face print. Um, it's an identifiable uh, tracker, obviously. You know, your biometric data can be used for login information at this point on a wide variety of platforms. And so, um, yeah, across the board, the data collection is, uh, uniquely intrusive. And then, yes, it's owned by the Chinese Communist Party, right? So um, everything is going back to Beijing. And it, it should concern us a lot more than I think, uh, you know, people are, are willing to admit. Well, what they don't realize is that the Chinese Communist Party, on the data they're collecting on their own citizens, um, they use it to monitor their version of the ESG, the equity, social governance, whatever stuff, the wokeness, um, they're, they're, they're watching the, their people. And if they don't behave in a certain manner, 
then they may not get enough allotment for their food. Uh, they may not find themselves at a job anymore. They can then control what happens to that individual by watching, as you said, the facial patterns, your social postings. Uh, but we also now, it goes to the point where that very same technology is being used in the advertising industry, and they can look at a – the board will see a person, the look on their face, the type of stance they have, and tailor the ad to that individual. This technology is so advanced that people don't understand how invasive it is in our daily lives. Yeah, that's right. You know, I think the average consumer isn't anticipating that the advertisement that they receive is uniquely catered to them. A lot of the times you're under the impression that everyone is seeing what you're seeing. And I think more and over, this technology is beginning to kind of find itself in unique different industries, different mediums, uh, and it shapes the types of content you consume to make sure that, you know, basically there's a 100% satisfaction rate for the, the consumer. And that's very dangerous because you're under the impression that, you know, you're watching this with your own free will and that your impressions, your takeaways from it um, are all organic, but in reality, they're manufactured and uh, ultimately it takes away the control from the consumer. Uh, you know, oftentimes with targeted advertising, people believe that, um, you know, they would have purchased the item anyways. That advertisement actually helps them. Uh, but there can be uh, a little bit more nefarious purpose behind targeted advertising. And when it's intertwined with a uh, algorithmically generated content stream, such as, you know, on an application like TikTok, where it feeds you different types of content that uh, evoke different emotions and different thoughts and then feeds you an advertisement for a given product, um, maybe you never would have purchased that in the first place or maybe your sense of need for the product was all constructed uh, by the same company trying to sell it to you. So it's very concerning. It's very intrusive. Well, you know, I had a laugh because a friend of mine has one of these Alexa and just for the heck of it, he asked Alexa for something specific. And he ended up in an argument with Alexa because it wasn't giving him what he wanted. It was giving him what it felt he should be looking getting. And it was very interesting. And he did it a couple of times just to see if it would actually happen. But this technology that is out there, whether it's TikTok, uh, Facebook, or Alexa, or Siri, it's tailored funnel you into a certain direction without you being aware that it's doing that. Yeah, you know, and it's all an extension of the passive data collection that goes on almost constantly throughout our lives, whether it be, you know, your wearable device that tracks how many steps you take, uh, whether it be your social media usage, what types of brands you engage with, all of that information is ultimately aggregated and, you know, compressed into a single profile and you find yourself getting those targeted ads that feel very close to, you know, your interests, um, things that are, are reflective of the way that you live. And, you know, it's, it's very dangerous because it can manipulate someone into making unwise financial decisions or even, you know, a child making unwise life decisions. In the instance of TikTok, you know, they, they're aware that the child is, uh, you know, under the age of 18, yet they're pushing uh, that radical gender theory stuff that you see all the time on uh, social media platforms. You know, they're reporting that, uh, you know, kids see very grotesque imagery. Um, and that's real. It's not uh, a coincidence. It doesn't happen on accident. It's deliberate. And it's all because this data collection never ends. It just follows us everywhere. So, 
Um, I think it's important not to get caught up necessarily in the targeted advertising component um, because it has uh, even more nefarious uh, applications where they push narratives and ideas on you that you otherwise would have never had or, or thought of. Well, it's also uh, the new technology we have uh, because it, it senses the response of the individual on the other side of the computer. The unfortunate part is is that you leave your child unsupervised on social media, uh, they can end up in areas on the Internet that is completely against anything the parent would want the child ever to see. And then you have people out there on the Internet at these sites waiting for a child to get in there so they can, can groom the child. And that is where it gets very scary, in which I, the communist Chinese are doing that with TikTok with everyone now, but we also have it on the other side of technology, too, here throughout the rest of the world. Yeah, that's correct. And I think, you know, we've seen that lawmakers have kind of deferred to the parent to put up these safeguards to protect their child from these horrible things online. But the parents don't even have the tools available to them to actually defend their families. And that's what's really concerning. You know, uh, these social media platforms roll out uh, parent toolkits, family toolkits, where uh, maybe you can limit screen time or uh, filter out certain types of content. But then the child, who in many instances is far more knowledgeable about the given platform or the device that they're using a platform on, is easily able to get around them and circumvent those parental controls, finding the family back in the exact same spot. And it forces the parent to decide, you know, whether or not the, the child can even have the device. Um, right, and you all of a sudden become a bad guy because the tech companies have put your child against you, um, and that's a, a very unfortunate reality we find ourselves in. And I think our lawmakers ultimately need to reapproach this issue. Um, most of them have never actually experienced a social media platform firsthand, or haven't raised a child online. And I think this is the the inflection point. Really, we're going to have to reassess all of our you know, tech policies following the TikTok debate and have a hard conversation about how we should legislate social media platforms and really just the digital domain in general. Yeah. Now, I was extremely surprised when I was doing my homework to find that Rand Paul does not want to ban TikTok. What the heck is he thinking? <laughs> well, you know, there's uh, there's a wide variety of perspectives currently in D.C. A lot of people have been caught up in one of these uh, TikTok bans uh, called the Restrict Act. It's put forward by Senator Mark Warner, and it has particularly wide language um, that kind of gives authority to um, have a little more maneuverability um, for the White House to, you know, go after not only TikTok, but other applications owned by foreign adversaries and um, Rand Paul has, uh, you know, kind of joined the group that is characterizing this as the next Patriot Act. Um, but I think, you know, they're missing the point a bit. This is a, a Democrat bill. Um, the Democrats don't want to ban TikTok. They weren't really inclined to put forward a very good piece of legislation. Uh, but there's a handful now of Republican bills that ban TikTok explicitly and give, you know, the White House maneuverability only on foreign-owned applications. Um, so, Ultimately, I think we're getting caught up in an intended distraction, right? I mean, we were, we've seen $15-plus million of lobbying be poured into D.C. from companies like ByteDance trying to block this. And I think it's working in many instances. I think we're uh, falling for a lot of their tricks. 
we should be rallying around bills like Senator Hawley's or Senator Cotton's um, that really give families the, the necessary relief that they've been waiting for and ban TikTok outright. I mean, just even, just for our national security and national sanity, we need to do that. But um, why go over to Elon Musk? Man, he stirred up a hornet's nest on his takeover of Twitter. Are we going to see something similar, other individuals trying to rein in the control that these companies are trying to place upon us, uh, our free speech? Uh, I mean, I got my YouTube uh, original channel has been taken down. <laughs> I, I, wait a minute, what happened yeah. to the First Amendment right? To, yeah, right. Forget it. They completely no no questions. You can't even protest. Nothing. I'm sorry. It's too long. It's it. That's it. We took it down. Now two weeks ago, I put the video up. It contained some information and opinion, personal opinion on COVID, not telling people what they can or shouldn't do, uh, just giving our personal opinion and then stating that our recommendation is to discuss this with your medical professional and make an informed decision then. Not telling someone to have to do it. Just tell him, talk to your doctor. <laughs> and that, they took it down. So I protested. And nope, it got taken down. But you have things like YouTube doing this, Facebook uh, taking down posts that someone put up. It may be a, a mime or whatever. But I'm sorry, you've got a lot of other graphic things that's far more dangerous than someone posting a mime on Joe Biden. Um but some of the simplest conservative speech is being taken down by these one after another after another. Are we going to see a true backlash like Twitter? Well, unfortunately, I don't really see any relief on the horizon. There's really no interest in this Congress of taking up aggressive reforms to big tech. You know, we're we're pushing hard on this TikTok issue. And even that, which is probably the most obvious, most egregious case, um, is getting a lot of pushback. And so um, there's not another billionaire waiting on the sidelines to come and purchase another company. Um, and a lot of our lawmakers still just don't understand that ordinary Americans' lives are uh, dramatically impacted by these very oppressive tech companies' uh, policies, content moderation policies, the beginning, the early stages of a social credit system, right? I mean, if you say something that's out of line with the uh, the narrative that's being pushed on something, let's say, like COVID or the, an election, your page is removed. And for many people, that's their primary source of revenue. Um, it could be a main vehicle for advertising. Uh, and you no longer get access to that because an unelected uh, official in Silicon Valley who's been tasked with monitoring content decided you're not welcome on the platform anymore. And this is still lost in D.C. on a lot of these legislators and their staff. And so we have a long ways to go in terms of educating members and teaching them about the side effects of this and uh, what we're headed towards, because this is only scratching the surface of a very grim future. Well, you know, everyone's walking around with a phone or some form of a smart device, whether it's on their wrist or in their pocket. And the technology that's on that phone, people don't understand how invasive it is. Uh, you mentioned Google before, uh, but if you don't turn off that app inside, wherever you go, Google locates you, and they can actually give you a map of where you were over the last year. But it goes up into the cloud where just about anyone else can access that information. There's so much invasion into our daily private lives uh, 
but people are just not turning the devices off. They don't care anymore. It's like privacy doesn't mean anything anymore. Well, you know, a lot of uh, people have had devices forced upon them, whether, you know, it's the transition towards a more cashless society, um, whether you need it for your commute, right? You need the map system. Um, Most people can no longer uh, separate themselves from the device. And a lot of people have become addicted to its more recreational um, applications, you know, such as social media, um, things that provide us with entertainment. Um, And so, you know, it's very difficult. There's there's not a lot you can do in terms of uh, reining in the, the data collection and the surveillance that's going on at a commercial scale. Um, you know, they've designed these applications and these systems to collect vast amounts of data and to monetize them. They sell them to advertisers, to data brokers who, you know, exchange that amongst other private sector entities and in many cases our own government. And, you know, that, that's a very scary thing to wrap your head around that, some of the most intimate details about your life are being traded on the open market, and you have no idea about it. Um, ultimately, this really has still not gained popularity in D.C. Um, as an issue of importance for ordinary Americans. And so a lot of the times it's like we're screaming into the void, but it's what needs to be done. We have to, we have to keep fighting for uh, more strict data protections and um, ultimately for your digital rights. Uh, you know, a lot of the times we're acting as though um, your online behaviors are on a totally different planet than your real-life physical behaviors. But at the end of the day, your constitutional freedoms still apply when you go online. Well, what about companies like ExpressVPN? Does that help protect the individual's rights and, and privacy? Well, you know, there's no silver bullet. ExpressVPN would limit some things, but uh, at the end of the day, a lot of those trackers and um, things of that nature are still going on passively in the background. So I think it's important to to understand that, um, you know, while a company like that might market themselves um, correctly so as as a privacy shield, um, it's only covering a small piece of the pie. Um, Broadly, you're still being surveilled at a, a large level um, regardless of if you had an ExpressVPN on or not. Um, one thing that you could do that's, you know, very helpful um, kind of maintenance uh, for your own personal digital hygiene is to go through and delete any application that you haven't opened in the last, let's say, two weeks, um, because those all still in the background collect information and sell them on you. Um, a lot of the times people download a single application um, for a single use and leave it on their phone forever, and those things run in the background and collect information. So make sure that, you know, whatever is on your phone is only what you absolutely need. Uh, make sure that you're using things like a VPN um, to try and minimize it, but understand that regardless of what you do, it will still happen. Well, one of the things I do is I go through my apps every now and then and disable and whatever I know that I'm not going to use again, I delete. So by disabling it, I I shut the app off until I'm ready to use it again. And then once again, I disable it again. Is that a smart thing to do? Uh, I'd say that's generally wise. Um, ultimately, you know, it's very easy to reinstall an app. So if you find yourself disabling applications and, you know, maybe not re-enabling them, I would say it's probably better to just delete the app. Um, a lot of the times the apps on our phones are completely worthless, um, right? I think uh, oftentimes you could probably get by just using your phone, your email, and, you know, your, your Maps app. 
um, that's a very valid use of your phone just to limit it to that. You don't need social media. You don't need a lot of these things for the average person. Um, so I think it's important to, you know, just in terms of general mental health as well, to try and draw back the, the amount of things that you rely on your phone for. Well, what drives me crazy is now they have the apps where you can use your phone to pay. Now, that yep. scares the bejesus out of me. I mean, it's one thing that yeah. you've got the, um, the the chips on your cards that can you know, trace you and be copied or whatever. But it's another thing when it's on your phone where just about anyone can pick it up or or clone your phone without you knowing it. Yeah, you know, uh, I think you're seeing more and more in major metropolitan areas. And, you know, they market it as a product of crime. But a lot of these stores are going to cashless. Um, and that's pivoting to a very digital banking system. People are very dependent upon uh, applications and companies such as PayPal uh, that have shown that they're very comfortable with the same types of censorship that platforms like Facebook or Instagram are. And, you know, if you look into the onto the horizon and consider what it means to be a, a cashless society or um, for you to rely on your, you know, banking or financial uh, needs upon a, a Silicon Valley company, well, it's a very scary thing to think about because, you know, overnight maybe you said something that wasn't very popular on Facebook and your money is just frozen in an account waiting for a, a review that will just never come. Um, these are very real things that um, could just be a few years away. Um, so I think it's very important to try and resist that as much as possible um, to avoid digitizing the entirety of your life. All right. Jake, it has been a pleasure to have you on. And if you do run across Tom, uh, tell him congratulations on his promotion. And we welcome you back <laughs> any time and hope to, to work with his replacement in the very near future. Thank you, and God bless the <laughs> hard work you do, sir. Have a good one. All right. Check out, check out Jake, Jake Denton at heritage.org. That's the end of the show we got here for us today, Curtis. And to remind everyone, it's uh, Holy Week next week, um, so Good Friday, I as a rule, don't uh, broadcast a live on Good Friday because I'll probably be sitting in church during our normal airtime. So I will have a pre-recorded go up on there. And I want to thank everyone for hanging out with all the things that went right and wrong on the show. And we had a blast. And thank you for our callers, Pianki and Sweet Sue. Thank you. God bless for the good information and comments you have given us. We love you and treasure you. And that's all I have to say for now, Curtis, until I say good night and God bless. I think I lost Curtis. <laughs> well, with that, I'll leave the closing with from my friend Gary uh, Pecorella, Save America.
Thank you. 